Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. And I'm Ellie. And this month on our science fiction book club podcast, known as Spectology, we are reading Yoon Ha Lee's excellent Nine Fox Gambit. Uh, it is the first in his trilogy about the Hex Arcade. They're big military science fiction. Um, this will be our post-read episode where we talk about the book in depth, so there will be spoilers in the future, but we're actually going to start off first talking to Ellie a little bit, our guest today, about her job, because we realized when listening to the pre-read episode that there was a lot more that we wanted to talk about there that we just didn't. So we're new at this. Uh, we're going to be learning as we go, and you know, our learning today is talk to your guest. <laughs> <laughs> Let them speak. Um, yeah, so we're going to talk to Ellie a little bit just about what she does with the DOD because she works as a game designer for the military, which is interesting. I didn't know that existed until I met Ellie. Um, I assume that's also true for a lot of people. So, um, yeah, it we'll was go true for me, basically, until I stumbled <laughs> upon it. So. Right, right. Um, so yeah, so we'll talk about that. And then we'll let you know, when we get into the actual spoilers of the book. This is a little bit like non spoiler pre discussion. So um, yeah, Ellie, who are you? And what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> what exactly is my job? Uh, yeah, so so as Adrian mentioned, I'm a game designer who supports the US Department of Defense, um, which is the department of the US government that handles the military and um, sort of related national security affairs. And I do what is called wargaming, which is a particular type of method for analysis. Um, right now, I mostly do games that are intended for research purposes. Um, but in the past, I've also done games as part of professional military education. So a lot of people aren't aware of this, but the Department of Defense actually runs a large number of colleges and master's degree granting universities um, that they send military officers to to gain particular skill sets. And so I used to work at one of those. Cool. So when you say that you do analysis through game design, like what does that mean exactly? Yeah. So I work on a really broad range of topical issues. So at any point in time, I could be working in lots of different parts of the world and on lots of different issues. But what the common thread is, is the way I look at these problems. So I try to help the military either get a better understanding of what a particular problem looks like um, or try to help the military develop a new solution to a problem that they have already. And so one of the ways that we do, we do lots of different types of analysis to help the military understand these problems, but one way and the way I focus on is by designing games that we have military officers or civilian subject matter experts, either from other parts of the government or from um, other you know academic uh, think tanks and universities come and uh, all sit in a room together and participate in a game. And some of those games look like a conference or a workshop. So there's people sitting around a table, um, you know, talking about a problem. And some of them look like I let folks loose in a board game design store and kluge together a <laughs> bunch of counters and boards from different games all together into some sort of hybrid that looks like it belongs in somebody's basement. <laughs> I love the sound of that. Could you, is there something you could say that might be a good, uh, simple explanation of how this differs from the kind of gaming that listeners might be more familiar with, like an actual board game people might've played or some other kind of game? 
Yeah, so there's actually a super interesting relationship between recreational games and military games because uh, there's a lot of back and forth between the two of them, but the direction of the influence has changed over time. Um, so initially, when we think about games, uh, often people talk about chess or Go um, being really sort of quintessential war games. Um, those were games that were designed not to teach specific military tactics, right? You don't learn how to fight a battle by playing Go, but rather to educate senior leaders, you know, elites, military commanders about how to think strategically, how to think out uh, a couple steps ahead in time, how to think about what's in the opponent's best interest, uh, how to work within a set of constraints. So that there, that's sort of what we think of as the earliest set of games. Uh, and then in the 19th century, uh, the Prussian general staff started doing what we think of as being sort of the first modern military games or what we call Kriegspiel from the German. Um, and so those games were a mix of educational games. And so this was a way uh, in between wars of teaching new officers how to think about a military problem. So they would load all the military officers up in a wagon and take them to a particular site and say, OK, here's a potential battle that could happen here. What would you do? And you started walking through, OK, I would arrange my forces here. I would do this. And then somebody from the more experienced staff would play the adversary forces and do the same thing. And you would basically walk through the battle. And so the primary purpose was educational. You wanted the new officers who maybe hadn't been in a battle before to get their dumb ideas out when there weren't actual dead bodies that were going to happen as a result. Um, but but they realized that, that this was also a really good way of thinking through potential problem sets. Right. So given the terrain you have, there's places where you're more or less likely to have a battle given the adversaries you have, right? And so you can think through, okay, what happens if France invades Germany from this direction into this location? Like, what could that look like? And you could start to play through those. And so the staff started keeping a record of the games as an analytic product so that they could say, hey, we already thought about this battle in advance. We thought about some of the ways it could go. And so now once we're in the battle, we can be like, oh, this is looking a little bit more like game run number 74. Hmm. That time we lost because we did this thing. So maybe we shouldn't do that this time. Right. So, so it's, it's almost like keeping record of chess openings or something. Right. And like actually a lot of the notation looks kind of similar. Right. Again, because the, the the direction of learning was still coming from, you know, they had these games like chess and go. And so, you know, they were figuring out how to learn it. Um, you know, if you look at what the Kriegspiel games look like, um, you know, you had like a terrain map and little metal counters for each of the units. So pretty, pretty rudimentary um, mechanics. Um, that then evolved. Other militaries found out about this and were like, oh, that's a really clever idea. We should do that, too. So by uh, the late 19th century, the U.S. military was doing this, both the Army and the Navy, um, though the Navy's games are more well known. Um, there's a really famous series of games that happened during the interwar years between World War One and World War Two at the U.S. Naval War College. Um, and so there's a great line from Admiral Nimitz, who commanded the Pacific Fleet during World War II, that the games at Newport, the, the college, had uh, they had seen everything that the Japanese did except for kamikaze pilots. And that's a little bit of an exaggeration. Um, but what these games did was provide a forum for military officers who didn't have personal experience in a major war to play through lots of different options. And as technology was changing, to better understand what you could do with this new technology, what worked, what didn't work, um, what types of issues you tended to see. So, for example, Midway was played through many, many times before we ever actually fought the Battle of Midway. 
Um, rolling into the post-war years, this is where gaming for analysis, as I mean it, sort of comes out. And it comes out of the nuclear revolution. So once you had the atom bomb, there were huge questions about, like, what does warfare look like right now? What is what is what is a two sided conflict where both sides have these weapons that we don't we've we've seen what they do. It's really horrifying. What what does this actually mean? And so uh, the Rand Corporation was involved in a very famous set of games in the 50s that were helping the military wrap their head around what does conflict look like now? And some of the tools that they were using were were sort of in conversation with a growing field of hobby gaming. So after World War II, people had more time and more money available. And so you started getting a rise of, of entertainment games. Um, and so you got this interesting dialogue back and forth. So for example, uh, those of you who have played military games before, um, if you've played Tactical or operational games have probably seen that the board has hexes on it. So the terrain is divided up in hexagonal pieces that lock together. Um, so that board was first developed by John Nash when he was an associate at Rand uh, and then really quickly ported into the hobby gaming world. And then, but over the years, the hobby gaming world did a lot of work refining different types of rule sets, different types of ways you can represent combat forces. And now we pull on those rule sets all the time um, because they're they're well developed and convenient, and so we can modify them for um, actual military conflicts. You know, just by adjusting them on the margins rather than having to start from scratch. So it's a two way street going back and forth, um, but. Um, you know, on the analysis side, it's sort of a mix of different things. Some of it's sort of the thinking through a battle that we haven't fought before in the sort of traditional Prussian way of doing it. Um, but sometimes it's also figuring out, hey, what is this type of warfare that we're just starting to see? Um, so things like cyber um, become really interesting examples of, you know, what's what are new things that we ha we haven't seen what a major full scale war between near peer adversaries looks like now that cyber is in play. Let's think about what that space looks like and think about how to fight that war in a way that doesn't wipe out humanity. <laughs> yeah. Good. <laughs> I love hearing all this. This is so interesting. Yeah. I, I, of course, I of course come at it from the perspective of somebody who loves games, but has never had any kind of professional reason to be involved in them. Other, you know, as a relating to national security issues. Well, um, it's interesting because most national security gamers start out as hobby gamers. I'm actually, I did a really? little bit of hobby. Yeah. So so that is actually if uh, so my dissertation looks at, is looking at wargaming. And as part of it, I did a survey of the field. And it's it's something like well north of 70 percent of the respondents to the survey, which, you know, isn't representative or anything. But just to give you some sense, something north of 70 percent said hobby gaming was a major influence on a mm. par with past military experience or their academic training that they wow. pulled on in their work. Um, so it's huge influence. That's wild. Makes but sense, it also but means we're all big ass. Yeah. We're just we're big honking dorks. Like you go to one of these <laughs> military gaming conferences and like instead of the like mixer with cocktails, people just like whip out game boards and start <laughs> playing games. That's great. I That's mean, so interesting. <laughs> that sounds like my parties, too. So. Uh, yeah, we're, we're well strewn with what I refer to as awkward extroverts. Like we, we want to make friends with people, but we're real bad at it. And games are just like such a helpful crutch for that. Yeah. Cool. I love that phrase, and I'm going to use it. <laughs> That's great. I mean, because I am one. Right. Yeah, I love it. Cool. Well, I think that's uh, those that I mean, you just answered every single question I actually had prepped for you. So I don't know if we do, <laughs> Matt, did you have any others about the gaming stuff? 
I was sort of interested in like a day in the life. Oh, that's um, I don't know how much you can say about the details, but you know, just when you say that you like, do you spend most of your time designing games? Do you spend most of your time doing analysis? How does that kind of break down roughly? Yeah. So I think it probably makes sense more to talk about like the lifespan of a project rather than a day in the life. Um, cause mm-hmm. at any point in time, I'm in lots of different points on lots of different projects. Um, but anytime I'm doing a game, there's definitely a huge research element. And so the the joke among game designers is always the person who learns the most about the problem is the game designer himself. And we'll, I want to come back to this because it's something that the book brings up. Um, but so I spend a lot of time doing research. Um, so interviewing folks who know way more about the problem set than I do, trying to understand how they think about the problem, what they think is important uh, and what they think can be kind of abstracted out of the game. Right. Because as a game designer, a lot of what I'm doing is figuring out what things need to be represented, what things can be abstracted away, because I can't recreate the world and have it be playable. Um, and so making those choices in smart ways. Um, and that's, that's the same, whether you're doing educational or analytic gaming. Um, and then some of it is building the actual game. Um, so I have a desk that is totally littered with boxes full of small colored cubes and seven sided die and 12 sided die and 20 sided die and hundred sided die. Um, like it looks at best, it looks like I teach preschool at worst. (laughs) It looks like I'm running like a small game con out of my office. Um, uh, and, and so some of my time is spent, yeah, like, you know, putting together the mechanics, figuring out what the visual represent, you know, is this a game where there's a terrain board? Is this a game where there's no board at all? And it's about cards, you know, those sort of mechanical choices. Um, and, and, but that's all driven from the research on the front end, right? So based on how experts understand the problem, I try to pick a sort of game language that makes sense for, what they're, they think about. Do they think about it as being trade-offs and tipping points? Well, then cards work really well. Do they think about this as being seizing and holding territory? Well, then you're going to need a terrain map, right? And so you can think about the nature of the problem kind of driving those design choices you're making. Mm-hmm. Um, some but of also my- alternatively, like the wrong design choice can make people think about the problem in a way that maybe isn't correct. Totally. And this is this is something game designers worry about a lot. Games are really, really compelling. And the thing that differentiates my job from a hobby game job um, if I misrepresent the Battle of Gettysburg in some way, but the game's still fun to play and I still get sales, like I'll get some nasty grams from historians, but no big deal. Where if I misrepresent the problem in some fundamental way that has officers thinking about it wrong, and particularly if I build a compelling but wrong game, um, I can really warp people's thinking about a problem set. And so I have to spend a lot of time thinking about how the choices I'm making in the game design are influencing how people think about the problem. Again, this is something the book brings up. Um, So... Thinking about, um, you know, not just in in terms of like, am I representing this problem correctly, but am I doing it in a way that people, that the audience I'm talking to can engage with? Am I doing it in a way that is uh, safe and helpful, right? So uh, I've done lots of work looking at irregular warfare. And so then I'm representing complicated, multi-sided conflicts in a short amount of time? How do I boil down the narrative that's driving a civil war in a way that's not reductionist and doesn't sort of take agency away from from the sides that aren't the US? How do I make that seem concrete and real? And then how do I do that in a way that's 
safe for the players, right? So this, again, is something the book talks about is games are really influential. I don't want to traumatize my players. And so I've got to be really careful about how I represent issues that are sensitive, um, whether that be representing other religions or other cultural narratives in a way that's sensitive and appropriate, um, or whether that be thinking carefully about how I'm depicting the violence of war um, so that it feels thoughtful and helpful to people rather than harmful to people. Mm -hmm. Mm. Or like flip or glib or anything too, probably. Yeah. 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 I, I, I was really interested in the extent to which almost everything you just said could be applied to the position of the author of a book about these topics, uh, a yeah. book about military fiction or military history. It's fascinating to think, you know, it's, it's, it's both in some sense the job of the historian where it might be more obvious, but it's also in some sense the job of the speculative fiction author who wants to depict in some, who wants to capture something real. You don't, I, at least I would think most people who had some kind of you know, so somebody like Yoon Ha Lee, for example, who has who's clearly guided by moral impulse, um, wouldn't want to give people the wrong idea in a way that would direct their thinking um, towards bad solutions to real problems. You know, in in much the same way that you described not wanting to do that or being concerned about that problem, I would imagine you know a, a, a conscientious author of science fiction that involves issues like this would be thinking very similarly. Yeah, no, I, and so um, one of my favorite game designers has this great line that games are uh, participatory story living. And Ooh. so, I, yeah, there's this, there's a really strong tie between gamers are storytellers, and a lot of us think of ourselves that way. And so we end up having lots of debates about how much of our job is science and how much of it is art, and different people fall in different places. Um, I tend to land... Not surprisingly, I'm a social scientist. I land in the no wood social science, right? Like the narrative is important. The story is important. You can't strip that away. At the same time, it's not it's not just art. There is there is a, a real world underneath it. Um, I am at some point a positivist. Um, and so I've got to be true to the world that's around me while also representing that the world is different for different people. Mm hmm. Cool. Let's I have I had wanted to ask one more question that I think we should start talking about the book and start because I wanted to talk about some of this stuff in the context of the book, too. Um, yeah. And that final question is just um, for listeners and for myself, honestly, um, who are into this kind of thing. Are there any commercial games available that you would recommend as like, oh, this is actually a really good example of what we do in a military context, too? Like I'm thinking one that I've played a lot of is diplomacy. Is diplomacy good or bad? Or like, where is it good and where is it bad, maybe? Yeah. And, and so I think that latter question is probably the better way to think about it, right? Like all games have some things that are useful and some things that aren't. Um, I think it's it tends to be easier to draw a straight line between some of the games that represent um, military operations and the games that are about kinetic operations on the military side, right? There's just a clearer one-to-one. -one. Um, one that's fairly well-known and accessible is Harpoon, which is by Larry Bond, um, who's done quite a lot of work um, in sort of defense circles. And so that game's often pointed to as one that sort of straddles the line. Um, people use it in educational contexts within the military, um, but then it's commercially available. Um, there's actually quite a number of game designers who float back and forth. Um, one of the most interesting ones 
uh, and there's a Washington Post profile of him that we can link to in the show notes, is a guy named Volko Runke, who was at one of the CIA's educational institutions for a long time and is a well-known commercial game designer who specializes in uh, games about counterinsurgency that are are just really thoughtfully done. Um, he's got He's got great mechanics, um, in, you know, sort of has built this series of games that all use kind of similar mechanics, but is really thoughtful about how he translates them into different contexts. Um, and he's he's just a really he's a really fun game designer. Um, so we'll, we'll link to the, the post, but any of his games are great. Um, but there's also game designers who don't have strong ties to DoD who do really great work as well. Um, there's a Canadian guy named Brian Train. Uh, who's again works on irregular warfare games that are just, just really well done. Um, and so any of his stuff, I'd really recommend you pick up. Um, Joe Miranda does more traditional, uh, conventional force on force games, and so he's another good good designer to check out. Uh, in terms of like books and that sort of thing, um, Peter Perla has a book called The Art of Wargaming. Uh, as a art of war pun, uh, that's sort of the quintessential text that most people will point to within the military gaming circle. But it's actually written to be a book both for hobby gamers and professional game designers. And so it talks a lot about the overlap between the two. And so, I, you know, for someone who wants to read a book length treatment, I definitely recommend picking that one up. Awesome. Great. I love it. I love these suggestions. I'm so excited. This is so cool. Um, <laughs> this is going to end up with game night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> let's talk about that. And I should there. say, I'm actually, I'm not a big hobby gamer myself. Um, particularly at this point, it sort of, it feels more like work, work than it does yeah. like recreation sometimes. Mm. Um, and, you know, I played games growing up, but I was not what is considered a hardcore gamer within within these circles. So I also would say, like, I tend to be much more on the side of, uh, the skills I bring are much more the skills of a social scientist to be able to think about a problem, think about the mechanisms, think about how to depict the mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And that's the same whether I'm writing a regression or doing a case study or doing a game design. It just happens that game designs are most of what I do rather than not very much of what I do. Right. Um, Adrian, I'm sort of curious to flip the question back to you because you've also done some work on game designs in a different context. I have. Yeah. So most of my game design has been in the context of building also educational materials, actually. Um, oftentimes not even things that are explicitly games, but are um, projects like th like problem sets, that kind of thing, like things for people to work on all in the context of well, not all, but a lot of in the context of learning how to code or learning how to do design. Um user experience design on the web in particular so it's interesting hearing you actually talk about the process of this of like bringing together subject matter experts and having your own kind of like learning process and thinking about like what can i abstract and what has to be like a key like when i think about it a lot of what i think about is like okay what is the skill that i'm trying to get my students to practice and the answer is I cannot abstract that skill. That is the thing they need to practice. Because a lot of the stuff yep. I do is like learn by doing kind of stuff. So I want you to, you know, uh, what's what's a, a a really kind of dumb example, but but is useful here is, you know, I want you to get better at just like thinking of ideas. Right. So yep. then I'm going to have to design a game where you're thinking of new ideas. And I maybe want to design it where like the ideas you have to think of are like purposefully dumb so that you stop feeling self-conscious about your own ideas. Cause that's a lot of what I'm teaching is to like, you know, stop feeling self-conscious, 
go ahead and just be willing to like say what you want to say. Um, and so, you know, maybe in that case you build something where it's like, you know, you have to, you get three objects and you have to put them away together in a way that make other people laugh because then you'll feel less self-conscious about like the fact that it's going to be kind of dumb, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and so it's, it's, it's just interesting hearing you talk about this for me, because I think there's a lot, a lot of the same stuff goes into this around, you know, making sure that the gaming environment is a safe environment, especially because most of what I do is in a classroom setting in person and involves like a lot of different people and different like positions in their life, but all kind of like aiming towards a similar goal, which is getting a job as a designer or a web developer. Um, and also this idea of like, you know, oftentimes I come in and, you know, I might not know anything about user experience design. And so a lot of what I'm doing <laughs> is working with these experts to, you know, distill their ideas into projects or games or like, you know, group activities that have a goal. And then a lot of what I think about too, because for, for me, part of where game design comes into play in curriculum design is my output isn't just the game, but also a rule set that I can give to other teachers so they can run this game in the future. So it's both helping yep. this one teacher get good at running this game for themselves, but also being like, eventually I'm going to, I'm never the facilitator. I'm not building a private, it's not like a D and D game where I am like building an adventure and then running it myself. So I just need to do it good enough for me. I'm building D and D adventures to give to other people that they're going to run and I'm never going to be there. So I think a lot, like a lot of what I've pulled from the hobby game is not actually even on the process side it's on the design document side and it's thinking yes. like you know how do how do i design a rule set that yes. teaches someone how to play the game teaches someone how to run the game most of these games have facilitators and for me i i do think about dungeons and dragons a lot because i think that's one of the closest like a dungeons and dragons module and a like single learning activity are like almost one for one the same in all the important ways yeah. And it's funny because DOD gamers tend to lean more towards the like hex encounter military games, mm -hmm. right? They're the sort of obvious equivalent. Um, but I'm actually often pushing back and being like, no, role playing games are actually much closer to what we're doing because often, particularly when we're looking at non kinetic problems, it's less a matter of yep. moving terrain, forces over terrain, and more an issue of like, well, what does the geopolitics of this look like? And that's not something you're representing. Uh, in that sort of physics-based modeling space, but rather it's about interactions be between people uh, and how they react to to different types of stress and different types of offers, and mm -hmm. that that's something that the D and D world is sort of much much more comfortable with than <laughs> some right. of the hex encounter stuff. Uh, I really like story your, gaming world, like kind of like moving from D and D to the more story based gaming and stuff too. I think does a lot of the like interpersonal relationship gaming really well. Yeah. And one other thing you mentioned that I think is worth calling out as being a really interesting overlap is this notion of um, adult learners who need to learn how to do things. Right. Because when I'm working with when and I'm even in educational context, the military officers I'm working with have been in for, you know, 20 years. They're they're professionals. Mm -hmm. They know more about how to do their job than I do. Uh, and so one of the things I really like about games is that they create a space that levels the playing field a little bit mm -hmm. um, that it gives the people in the room the ability to have agency and authority and expertise that I don't have mm -hmm. and um, opens up some space there. And and also that it's an experience of doing. And for a lot of military officers, uh, and, and I think this is actually true of adults more broadly, um, 
they've spent the last 20 years learning on the job. And so it's a much more comfortable way to learn mm. um, because it's what they're used to day to day rather than here is a textbook, like go absorb what the textbook is, even though you haven't done that since you graduated college or your initial uh, post-grad degree right. for folks who got one of those before going into the service. Um, it's probably it's probably been a while since they had that experience. Right. And so I think it can be a more natural transition. It's certainly a way I like learning a lot more than somebody handing me a textbook and saying, hey, like, go yeah. cram for this. And one of the things I, I've done and I really like this is, you know, it's like have a game that works, throw people at the game and have them play it once and then do the actual educational content, the more textbook like luxury, like, oh, this is what you did. This is what you didn't do. This is what worked, what didn't analyze it in the context of theory and giving them theory that then all of a sudden applies to a thing they've actually done and then play the game again. And now you're better at it. And it's just like that learning process can happen in a few hours instead of, you know, for weeks or months of doing it on yeah. the job. Or say, you know, ripping the game apart and, and having them interrogate, hey, mm -hmm. is the model of the game actually correct? Have you forgotten something important? Did you make the wrong abstraction? Um, and using sort of picking apart the game as a teaching tool mm -hmm. and then rebuilding it in some way that better reflects their own experience and expertise is another way I've, I've done sort of the same twist on the same idea. That's cool. That's great. OK, let's let's talk about the book here. <laughs> <laughs> great. So, OK, so I think at this point. We're going to talk about the book. So like the usual spoiler warning applies from this part on. We're going to be talking about the whole book as we go. So it's sort of like jumping right into spoilers. Um, also, I think it's worth just doing the content warning up front here. Um, I mean, we're talking about war and ethics within the military. There's a lot of violence in this book. I mean, you've, you've read it at this point, you, you know, um, and if you haven't read it, you should know. And, you know, we talked about this last time. The violence is often kind of like journalistic, but I actually, it was interesting. I found reading it that the like slight remove of the violence almost made it like harder for me to read in some ways than a hmm. more like like visceral violence would have um and there's also there's one scene that's like a pretty we'll talk about it i think a little bit there's like a sexual assault that happens on the pages that is maybe not super explicit but is like i found it interesting and kind of like i had emotions that i dealt with when i was reading it and so i think it's worth like calling out you know i mean i think it's worth saying too when i call out these content warnings it's not necessarily like oh you shouldn't read this book because of this but rather like i like knowing this stuff when i come into the books because it makes it easier for me to read them like coming in knowing it um and and listening to episodes and stuff beforehand too um and then i think there's also there's a there is like there are elements of suicide and death and self-harm and this kind of stuff that comes into play in the book that we might begin we might discuss i'm not sure how much of that we'll talk about directly but it probably some um yeah. So at that point, so we're going to talk a little bit about the characters. I mean, the main character we see and live with is Kel Charisse. Cheris? Charisse? Do we have a ruling on how we pronounce that? I said Cheris to myself, but... Okay, let's do that. I it think does, we just norm on mass pronunciations. Yeah. <laughs> it does not matter. Kel, Kel Charis, um, who is a female, more or less like military officer... Like, this is where actually, Ellie, you're going to know a lot more than we do about, like, how to talk about this thing. But she's like an on the ground tactical commander. Yeah, she so she is she's an infantry captain. Great. Um, so <laughs> she is 
she is a field officer um, rather than a staff officer, for those of you who are familiar with the military at the start of the book. Um, and so uh, the, the, the world doesn't make a huge division um, between infantry and uh, shipboard officers uh, within the command structure, but they have different cultures that are explicitly called out in the book. And so some of the characters we interact with, including uh, Cheris, are um, are really, you know, they're the ones who go work on the ground, invade the planet, shoot people, um, versus the ones who are in the ships. And so one of the things we see over the course of the book is her having to change jobs, literally. Um, she is she is going from the perspective of somebody who is commanding. Um, we don't get a strong sense, um, but, you know, a, a captain would often have sort of hundred, a couple hundred people under their command. And that feels about right with the way the book's described. Um, to somebody who is in is running a war from a ship commanding a bunch of other ships as well as ground forces. And so she's she's very radically changing the scale and also her her primary part of the conflict she's involved with. Yeah, and kind of piggybacking on the conversation we just had, like a lot of that change, like, you know, she's has to think more abstractly about the war in front of her and like, that's where these games can come in too. Cause like a game is also a more abstract version of, of a war. Um, and then I think it's worth calling out Shuos Jadao here because he is her sort of like, in some ways teacher as she goes through this, but also like a literal, like mind implant in her. Yeah. And, and a mentor in a lot of, right. Like right. teacher, mentor, teacher, mentor, occasional torturer. Yeah. How, you know, literally a part of her <laughs> this would be the the moment where somebody would make a joke about better half but <laughs> i mean yeah i'm not there. sure janelle would make that yeah. joke though so. <laughs> um it, their relationship is really interesting because she is the one who suggests like bringing him out of deep sleep and it's almost implied a little bit that she is um she's softly what? manipulated into yeah manipulated right exactly uh yeah, so so taking a step back, um, the world we're in is run by a set of six factions. Mm -hmm. One of them is the Kel, which is the military. Um, and the show who are basically the intelligence service, uh, which Jadao is originally from, um, the current head of the show basically manipulate Cheris into picking him as her weapon of choice mm -hmm. and so uh basically subliminally angles her into to this brain meld situation right and i got a sense it was like half that half like choosing her to be one of the people to come up with ideas just because he thought she would be more likely to come up with it on her own too um yeah it's definitely like a combination of like her own choice and getting shown it as an option thus that she picked it yeah, and I think this sort of brings up something we're going to talk about more, but choice is a really important theme in this book. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the examples of the way choice or lack of choice is often not presented as a binary thing. It's not that you always have choice or you never have choice, but that there's a lot of different types of manipulation you can use to make somebody make the choice that you want them to make, even though they do make an active choice. They have 
they have free will, mm-hmm. but it's in a conscribed, manipulated way. Right. This is funny. We Matt and I had this conversation. I think it was in the maybe even the player of games episode, like way back in the day about like what is choice and what isn't in these contexts. Yeah. So I think we'll get into this. The thing that I think about when I think about the the Shuos folks, you know, they're sort of these stereotypical schemers in some sense. They're spies and manipulators. And I always wonder how plausible these sort of elaborate schemes are. It strikes me as being I mean, the closest sort of real world analog that I've heard of to the kinds of schemes that that Shuos uh, Mikodes, the the heck the head of all the Shuos, you know, undertakes. He's the one that sets Kel Cheris up to meld with Shuos Jadao. The closest real world analog that comes to mind is something like Operation Mincemeat in World War II, which is this incredibly elaborate, uh, you know, fake uh false intelligence plant that the allies undertook to make the nazis think that d-day was going to be uh undertaken in a slightly different location than the actual locate you know and this is, involves like corpses and false records and things in spain and you know it's this very complicated thing and people argue about the extent to which it even remotely worked but the ultimate objective of the Nazis not being prepared for the precise locations of the eventual landings at D-Day, that objective was achieved by whatever means, who knows. Yeah. But <laughs> mm-hmm. so there's this like one aspect of the arguments that you have about these complicated plots is just sort of, you know, it's very hard to attribute, uh, even after the fact, it's very hard to attribute, you know, um, success to specific actions that were taken. Sure, Shuos Mukadis gets what he wants. But like his plot is so ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is it really because of his plot that he gets what he wants? I think thinking about it in a domestic political context instead of thinking about it within international spying can make it a little bit more uh, tractable. Um, you know, if we think about this in a domestic political context, right, the, the level of scheming and manipulation that's going on doesn't feel totally out of line with some of what we think about when we think about, you know, local politics and the sort of convoluted mm-hmm. oh, school man. It board reminds election, me. Yeah. right? You know, so so on one hand, like, <laughs> I hear what you're saying, that, that, like, it feels like an overly elaborate scheme, but then, like, <laughs> you start looking at stuff in the news and you're like, eh, all no. right, maybe people are that convoluted. I, 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 it's, I don't think it's not realistic it is very realistic to me that people come up with convoluted plots they certainly do <laughs> it reminds me in particular when you said that it reminded me of nixon and some of the dirty tricks yeah. right i i i think i heard it was on um uh, uh what's the great slate podcast oh slow burn slow burn yeah on slow burn he mentions um that during the democratic primary in 72 nixon aides uh under the auspices of the whole larger dirty tricks campaign would do things like go into the various democratic uh candidate primary candidate at this point um campaign uh like hotels where they were staying and like steal all their shoes (laughs) (laughs) and with the goal of i guess delaying them from or something it's like this very it's very much a you know uh <laughs> like it's it's so weird and complicated what this must have this the the larger plans this must have been part of but 
I absolutely believe that people do do this. The question in my mind is only, you know, does that really work? Is right. that really why the thing happened? Well, I think to, yeah, to take it turns it back, out figuring out causality is hard. Right. And I think to, <laughs> to take it like, you know, explicitly, I think there's a lot of like TV show in this like in TV shows in this peak TV environment where like, you know, the question is almost like what form of politics do you believe? Is it House of Cards or is it Veep? Because like there are complicated plots in both of them. And in one, they like work out on purpose and the other like by accident, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's like, yeah. The, the 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 idea of like a perfect schemer at the top always getting you know always his way and in, in these tv shows is is i do i do feel a little bit like the okay this probably <laughs> doesn't work as frequently as it does yeah and i have to say one of the things i like about this book is that they don't present the shoes as all-knowing yeah. always functional like yeah. these schemes always you know um I think it's in the next book, but there's there's all these great character moments uh, sort of humanizing Mikados and the extent to which he's sort of a fallible human who screws things up for no particularly good reason mm -hmm. or gets gets sort of enamored with the complicated scheme because it's a complicated scheme. Yeah. Right. So, <laughs> right. So I think this that book is, is actually failure mode for that kind of person. <laughs> uh, right. And like, I, I actually think that that this book is much more on team veep than team house of cards. Right. And as yeah. a DC resident, that's like part of what I appreciate about it is that <laughs> yeah. it's, it's much more on the like, Oh, sometimes people just do dumb things. Um, <laughs> I think that's really true. I mean, at the end of the day, he doesn't actually, he gets what he wants in the very narrow sense, but he doesn't get what he wants in a global sense. No. By the end of the book, he's really not gotten what he wanted at <laughs> Dude, all. At the end of the book, like the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, he's, so yeah. very veep. Yeah. Yeah. He is. Uh, and he's not really presented as being a successful. Nobody in this book is a successful mastermind. Right. No. I mean, even I, I Jadao, who's sort of the strategic that. genius, screws yeah. things up all the time. Oh, yeah. And I mean, Jadao even like shouts it out a couple of times himself like oh if i yeah, just waited does. a little bit like this entire like you know faction would have been on my side and said i like jumped too soon and they you know their heresy came after i was imprisoned or whatever exactly yeah but exactly like 20 years after so if i right. i would have been alive i could have i could have i could have built this i could have fostered this yep. had i only known that this conversation was happening right and yeah. if i had even like you know conceived of that type of a way of bringing down the hex arcade as opposed to you know my like fuck the system version with no real vision on the other side of it yeah so let's lay out a couple of the things that we've not quite gotten to yes and then we'll yeah good good point uh we've mentioned uh kelcheris shuos jadao shuos mikudes uh, i don't think we mentioned um well, the other side right yeah the on the other side you know the book is sort of structured around this um this invasion that's undertaken of this rebel stronghold uh and on the side of the rebels in the fortress of the scatter of scattered needles we have the the uh the sort of double agent vahens i'm not sure double agent's quite the right term uh she she's more she's basically i think of her as actually being like an advisor to the rebellion in the same way we're like traitor i guess no, but she no, is she she's from, from another, the Hex Arcade. No, right. she's she's from. She, oh, okay. Yeah, no, no, she's from an outside um, power that I'm. I'm oh like, yeah, that's right. She's from the uh, what are they called? Starts I don't with remember. Name. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I'm not gonna know it. <laughs> this uh, this book has a lot of names, and I am not good with names, so nope. I definitely am not gonna remember a lot of that piece. So, but but there's a meddling foreign power that's basically trying to destabilize the Hexarchate, and so is is funding this and advising this rebellion, and so right. she's 
She's that sort doesn't of in, sound like anything that happens in the real world at all. No, not even a little bit, right? Um, and <laughs> she's a great character in part because we meet her uh, through a series of letters she is writing. And so mm. she, we hear her in her own voice in a way that we don't necessarily hear the others. But she's also... There's some really great moments of comic relief that she provides yeah. that are just... just this actually... The, her le- I loved her letters and I loved that literary device. And I also the that brought up a game to me, which is I mentioned earlier, the game of diplomacy, because the you know, I've played diplomacy only online. And so the way that you actually like interact with people are through these letters. And so it's interesting, Matt, you know, I've definitely had games of diplomacy where I have these long term plans of like, oh, and you know, in like six game years, I'm going to be on this other side of the board. And I need these two factions who are currently working with each other to be warring by then, or I won't be able to like take over either of them and like play out a long, like, you know, game of trying to get them working against each other and like managing to pull that off always feels really great and i and i loved that 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 feeling of like writing these letters and being like you know by the way i would do this or by the way i heard this information <laughs> you know and trying to like influence someone through this kind of like influence campaign that is both like very personal but also like you're obviously giving them the information you want them to have so that they can make the decisions that make the most sense given that information which are the decisions you want them to make felt very yeah real and interesting and just like so fun to to read yeah it's also interesting because it means we never actually see the rebellion through its own perspective we see the rebellion through the eyes of the hexarchates trying to retake the fortress and we see it through the eyes of of this rebel advisor but the advisor is always from an outside perspective i mean she is she's objectively making fun of some of the ideological claims of the rebellion right so there's this running gag at the beginning that they're they're resetting the calendar, which is why they're in rebellion, is so that they can have a different calendar. And that they've decided to name everything after farm animals, which she just thinks is the most ridiculous choice that they could have made, right? And so it's <laughs> it is so clear that the change in the calendar, which is the ostensible reason that you're having this rebellion, is so that you can have the seventh faction, you can change the calendar. And she doesn't care about any of it. Like, mm-hmm. she is there to like destabilize the system. And so we never actually see a really sympathetic vision of what the rebellion is for or about for the people who are part of the rebellion. Right. Which given what we like learn about their ideology only really towards the end of the book is a really interesting choice. Cause we would, you know, if we did have that internal view, we would probably be way more sympathetic of them from the beginning. So it's, I think a purposeful choice on Yoon Ha Lee's part to like not give us any idea of what their ideology is so that towards the end we can be like, Oh, Oh, we've been rooting for our protagonists, but like, Maybe we're, the rebellions, the good guys. Yeah, Maybe we are, we're we are more rooting ideologically ag- aligned with yeah. them. Yeah, we're rooting against the Democrats here. Right, exactly. Like, mm-hmm. like, like Democrats is in pro democracy people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, and so then the person she is writing the letters to is uh, Nirai Kujen. Actually, no. That- yeah, no. no. Uh, so she's writing it to the Lazao um, right. leader, which is the the seventh faction that the, that the rebellion Yosh. is about adding. Um, thank you. Um, <laughs> so many names. So many yeah. names. Uh, yeah, we're going to need to clean up this part. <laughs> I think the, foreigner, the foreigners are called Hafen. 
that yes right? H-A that sounds, sounds, yeah that sounds exactly right familiar. um no so so nira is part of the standing hexarchs so he's interesting because mm-hmm. he is he is one of the hexarchs but he is a hidden hexarch so there's a there's somebody who has the technical title and is doing the the public affairs part of it um but he is actually the sort of day job hexarch for the Niraj, is how we're saying it? Nirai. Nirai. Um, but, and that's because he is older than Jadaw is. Uh, he is the other mm. successful oh, right. reanimate from the yeah. Black Cradle. Uh, and so as the book goes on, we realize that uh, he and Mikados are basically have different visions about how the world needs to change. Uh, the Nirai have have basically been tweaking the world in order to keep the Black Cradle functional, to keep their technologies functional, uh, and thus have developed this horrible, calendrical system of torture in order to keep keep their pet technology going. And Mikados has realized that this is not actually a great way to run a world and is interested in trying to at least reform the system. And so we end by the end of the book, it's clear that there's actually three factions here. There is the actual rebellion that's been crushed by the end of the book, but there's now a schism within the Hexarch about what the Hexarchate about what the world should look like. And that, that is very centered on the calendar. And so in effect, Mikados is backing Jadao's rebellion that has carried on for the last 800 years. Mm-hmm. And Kujin, um, and there's this sort of complicated cat and mouse throughout the book, kind of behind the scenes between Mikades and Kujin, the two hexarchs, um, over over Jadao, over the game piece of Jadao, who of course himself is playing his own game um, that doesn't, you know, that in some sense lines up with uh, Mikodes's, but actually also is is not it's not the same and it has a lot to do with revenge. <laughs> I wonder to what I, I've only read the first book. So I wonder to what extent Jadao's ultimate goals um, would line up with a particular vision of the future of the, you know, Hexarchate rather than simply destroying stuff. Uh, I would imagine, you know, I would imagine given what we know after the end of the first book that Jadao might be willing to sort of come to different, types of agreement with you know possible you know ways of destroying the future and creating a new future but we don't see him doing any of that we just kind of the 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 final the final kind of beat of the book is is this sort of is is cheris committing herself to jadao's vision of taking down the hexarchate and so okay they're going to take it down but we don't know what's going to come next we don't know how they line up with mika does exactly yeah and just to to I have read all three books and that is a lot of what the three books are talking about is mm-hmm. how, what, what vision do you want to promulgate and the Churis Jadao hybrid um, mm-hmm. that goes forward in the books spends a lot of time sort of struggling with uh, what, what vision of the future do you want and why do you want it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's worth saying that the end of the book is, Charisse literally eating Jadao's memories and taking on his personality along with her own, which is, I don't know, I really, I really liked that. That was pretty heavy metal. <laughs> <laughs> there's an interesting, yeah, it's like there's, there's some sort of grim, dark, very grim, darky elements to this book, but it's like very, very not a traditional grim, dark world 
traditional right. dark universe. Um, some of the, well, like the, bla- like the black the, cradle, for example. El- oh yeah, the elements yeah. are there, but they're like fun instead of like yeah. everything's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. like adults having fun instead of seventeen-year-olds being emo. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, you know, it's one of the things that I really enjoy about this book, Adrian. In the last episode, you made this casual comment that like this is the world you least want to live in of all the books mm-hmm. and i was thinking about that a lot because in some ways like it's an obviously terrible world um but I mean, it's like actually the calendar is based on torture right like <laughs> this is these are not this is not a nice society um but in some ways it does not come off as a terrible place like you you mm-hmm. are living with these characters and even when they're unhappy with the choices that they're being forced into by the government they're very human and they're they inhabit a really rich world that uh, is is compelling and appealing in some really concrete ways. Totally. Um, you know, the, I the, loved reading about the world and would love to read more of it. Yeah. <laughs> it's I think, Matt, you were the one who said, uh, the, you know, it's it's a world I'd much rather be a, a anthropologist in than live in. But I'd love to be an anthropologist. there. <laughs> right. Oh, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember saying that, but that is true. I, I, um, I love, I mean, I, I love a lot of the detail and a lot of the actual world building, but I also love the conceit of it, or there's a couple of different axes of the conceit of it that I really, really like. One is just the idea that you might, the idea that a choice might exist where, you know, immortality is possible, but you have to construct an entire society, an entire galaxy spanning society devoted to the principle of maintaining the operation of the technology of immortality with all these like countless billions of little side effects, basically. You ha- in other words, the machine that you need to build in order to become immortal is, uh, is the size of an entire galactic empire with yeah. billions mm-hmm. or trillions even of inhabitants. We don't know. And, and, but, but if you do that, it will work. It, it has the exact, you know, it has the exact properties of, of a piece of te- a reliable technology. It's just that the, its operation is that complicated and that terrible. That's one thing I love. It's so it's it, it reminds me of, you know, Mobius or or sort of like Meta Barons or some, you know, Hodorowski comic. It's like mm-hmm. it's this very, very sort of old school kind of early 80s, horrible kind of mythological science fiction that is a dark myth that tells the story of evil, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I mean, heavy like, metal being the comics that those were published in for the yeah. most part. But at the same time, you know, this, this version of that is not this version of that, you know, unlike, uh, unlike Hodorowsky of that era or Mobius of that era is not, um, is not only interested in the kind of tragic, aspects of a story about society being created along those lines it's also interested in um sort of normal people or people with a more a normal moral compass existing in that world and and having power in that world um you know kel cheris is sort of is is like not an everyman but plays that role sort of she she's our guide our window into this world and she has a kind of like recognizable human moral compass you know among all these sort of almost god creatures or well and even more than <laughs> than Calcharis in some ways one of the things i really like about the book's uh structural choice is you f- there are a number of chapters where you flip to a different character's mm-hmm. viewpoint 
only for one chapter mm. and that those characters really are are sort of every men and most of them most of the time you're flipping to Kel infantry officers and so mm-hmm. you're mm. seeing the the invasion of the rebellious fortress from the ground perspective and you're seeing the ethical choices they're making and so you see um you know the the guy who's gone into shell shock and is sort of barely getting by and how he sees the war and you see the person who is clearly the like self-sacrificing hero character and you see the way Mm -hmm. the world allows her to operate and so you see this sort of whole range of kind of standard types of military characters that appear in almost every military story um and you see the way that their choices are either enabled or constrained by the world that's been built around them which is one of the things i I really love as a a world building gesture Mm -hmm. oh yeah and and i love also that 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 um the in a lot of grimdark that I've read, at least, um, the choice space is constrained uh, in sort of un- to the point where it's almost unrealistic, even given the premises that we're given, because the author of a lot of those stories, uh, you know, at least ones I've read, like we'll take, Met- you know, Meta Baron, for example, like or take uh, um, Inkle, take the Inkle series, you know, the stories that are that are that that are being told are, are these sort of like weird myths. And so you don't, it's almost like there's, there's no real desire for a lot of normal normalcy to occur. There's no desire for a sort of normal kind of like standard recognizable moral uh, choice to be made. What we want to see, what the, what the direction the story is meant to go is instead in the direction of these like large, strange, you know, moral choices without getting too much into like what those stories are it's like a weird myth and it's focusing on gods making weird myth choices almost instead of people making people choices. And so like a lot of grimdark, I think works that way. Um, you know, and you get, you know, you get people having to make these terrible choices because only a terrible, only a person who makes terrible choices could possibly survive in this incredibly horrible, horrible future. That's not the way that this book works. Instead you have, um, you have a lot of these sort of normal types, like you suggest people who are recognizable, um, sorts that you would see in lots of other kinds of military fiction especially and some of them some of their you know some of them face really constrained choice spaces too but like they're constrained in like a recognizable way instead of in a distorted fantastical grimdark way where Whoa. like oh the only way to serve the only way for humanity to survive is if every single person kills every single person they love you know it's like some crazy myth myth thing like that no it doesn't work like that at all it's like oh some of them have very constrained choices oh the only thing that you can do in this instance is either die to save your comrades or not die or like or die but not to save your comrades you know it's like okay well that's really constrained what am i going to do okay well you know i'll make a choice such as a person would make and you know exemplify a certain type of character in so doing i want to push back on that just a little bit because i think that the the so i really liked those jumping into a different viewpoint chapters partially because i thought what they were doing really well was showing kel cheris's choices and how they affected people because her choices are so abstract and one of the things that jadao is telling her over and over and over again is to stop worrying about the people you're sending off stop worrying about the individuals like they're just not what you need to think about you need to think about them in terms of numbers and resources at your disposal not in terms of actual humans and part of what i think the book is doing a good job at is like 
you get the sort of like mentor figure telling your like main audience stand in this, like teaching them this lesson. And then the book goes and like does the other thing and goes and shows you the individual person and like the horror of war. Cause like, you know, let's, let's not like the book is very grim, dark in the sense that like what these people go through is awful. You are right there close and personal in their like close third person view of it as it's happening to them, as their like bodies are being torn apart, literally. Um, and so I think that is, that is, you know, sure. On the one hand, it's like not a mythic kind of thing, but on the other hand, like she is making terrible, terrible decisions that like would really weigh on her and do really weigh on her. And part of what the you know conflict of the book is is like, how much should I let them weigh on me? How much should I think about the people? I think. But I think the other part that's going on here, and this is sort of tying back into the military education thing, is that is a when you move up in the chain of command and you start commanding mm -hmm. more and more people. Uh, and I, I, you know, the military sort of makes this a starker choice, but I think it's true anytime you increase your span of control, right? You do have to stop thinking about the specifics. You have to start thinking yep. about these broader muscle movements. You can't make these choices based on, uh, you know, one individual's welfare weight against another. You, know, it, you can't right. make it about that sort of atomic level. And so on one hand, Jadao is absolutely right. For her to do well as a strategist, she has to think about the picture as a whole, and that requires abstraction because humans can't hold totally. that many things in our head at one time. Um, but from an, you're right, from an ethical perspective, uh, we need to think about individual choice. And this is, um, I think, you know, Matt, you brought up last time that you and Hali wrote this book with a theorem in mind. And I, I would posit one of the theorems is that uh, without choice, you can't really have heroism because over and over and over again, you see the individual characters on the ground wanting to make heroic choices and being choice constrained out of being able to be heroic, either because they have to do the heroic thing, whether they wanted to or not. And so <laughs> is it really heroic at that point? Um, so like the shell shock soldier being an example of that, mm -hmm. um, or that they want to make a heroic choice and they're bound, they're kept from doing so because of an uh, order they can't disobey. Um, so there's one of the other viewpoint characters who um, there's basically a suicide mission that a friend is assigned to and she wants to join her friend and isn't allowed to do so and can't do any like has to just follow the order. She doesn't have free will in that moment. Um, yeah. So it's it, really. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say. So so on one hand, the the scale is not the God choice but it is definitely the consequences of those bigger decisions coming mm -hmm. into play. Yeah. I, it is really interesting the way in which the world building constraint, like actually like, like what, it, like it's almost a fantasy in certain ways of like, they're actually removing the free will that like soldiers do have. Like I, I have friends who have served in the military and one of the things talking to them, that's always really interesting is the, you know, like, yeah, the chain of command is super important. And you, you know, when I was an infantryman and when I was an officer, I followed it, but also like we're all individuals and we're all making decisions on the ground as we go. And in certain ways, this world of the, um, the what are they called the formations i think mm -hmm. which actually like remove any agency like they turn yes. the soldiers from individuals into game pieces essentially um to to bring it back to that theme is this really interesting you know it does it constrains away any sense of heroism it you know makes it so that Ke kel Churis or whoever whatever K 
intel or you know commanding officer there is can know that their commands will be followed out as perfectly as possible but also on the human level sounds just awful <laughs> you know and again is part of why like not a place i'd want to live in because i don't think i want my you know i don't want to be a game pawn i mean part of what's interesting though um is the way formation instinct is depicted as being something that doesn't work for everybody and is a real shame marker if it doesn't work for you. So we see the first time uh, the formation instinct is implanted into Calcheris when she's in school and that she's really worried that it's not going to work for her, that that belonging to the Kel means having formation instinct. And we see another character who is what's called a crash hawk, which is somebody who doesn't have formation instinct. It didn't work on them. And in some ways, she is a very heroic character. She does the like classic heroic charge, um, but is also someone who's sort of seen as deeply shameful by the people around her because she has the free choice to try to be able to to save her men and to save herself. Um, so it's this it's this. The society that's built around it is just really interesting in how they think about it. Um, this is something that the later books pick up as well. So if you liked this part of the mm -hmm. book, I would definitely recommend you at least read the second one. Yeah, I feel like the 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 this is the only book of you know how Lee's or story or anything that I've read, and I'm definitely after it. Interested in picking up more. Cool. So should we talk more about the world building or do we want to kind of talk about some of these thematic elements that we that we had been been punting around earlier? I would vote to go into themes. I feel like the summary took a lot longer than we had thought about. Right. Are you good with that, Matt? I'm good. Cool. So should we should we talk a little bit about like gaming and strategy and like how do you want to how, how should we start this conversation, Ellie? Because this is your wheelhouse, I think, for the most part. I thought I thought one way to do it would just be to ask Ellie, just as a as a as an icebreaker, so to speak. Um, how do you? Uh, what do you think of the strategy deployed by Kelcheris and Jadao? Yeah. What do we think of it? To take the fortress. Does, does it? Is it essentially plausible? Are there any particularly implausible elements of it? Because to me, for example, it seemed more plausible in a lot of ways than what I've gotten from a lot of other military sci-fi books I've read, for example. Partly because it, it actually bothers to think seriously about stuff beyond the tactics of, you know, units meeting other units in kinetic, yep. you know, yeah. interaction. Yeah, I, uh, no, I, I think that's exactly right. Um, that it's, it is a lot of military sci-fi. It's about who has the bigger guns or the better, um, you know, the better soldiers. And that's not sort of what you see here. It's it's really about the decisions about uh, what we call strategic terrain. Right. So where where in the fortress is it physically weak? Right. So you see them um, targeting where they're going to try to breach quite quite carefully but then also a lot of it being about the population about which of these quarters are more sympathetic to the rebellion which ones are possibly more sympathetic to the old regime and can be brought back on board um you, you see them using um you know basically propaganda to try to uh influence the population in in and you also see them manipulating the leadership right that they're they're trying to get parts of the leadership to crack um, and that's that's all stuff that 
um, often you don't think about at the tactical level, but is incredibly important at the strategic level. And this is also where you get into the the idea that uh, fighting a war is not just a military endeavor, right? We have a State Department that's negotiating because really what you want in a war is for the other side to surrender so you can stop fighting. Um, and the sooner that happens, the better. And so that that's a diplomatic task um, that you're going to need to be able to reconstruct the fortress, right? Part of what makes this difficult is that they need the fort. The reason why they can't allow this rebellion to just sit and fester is because the fortress is in a strategically important place for the protection of the empire as a whole. And so the Hexarchate has to retake the fortress and the fortress has to be intact. They can't just blow the fortress up. Um, you, it's sort of the idea of you don't want to just demolish the capital city of the adversary, because if you do that, then like you don't have anywhere to rule them from. And so I thought that part was also sort of interesting. Um, you know, I think one of the thing, one of the scenes from a kind of game perspective that I think is most striking is actually where Jadao is trying to show Churis what the strategy is. And so he has this moment where he asks her to design a game about what's going on on the fortress. And what he's trying to demonstrate to her is that the game is political right? There's, there's an outside power that's involved that she hasn't recognized and that the fight is really about the outside powers influencing this rebellion and fighting the rebellion is really just a means of being able to deal with, with this outside power. And so the, the way he does this is to sort of have her build what she thinks is going on and she gets way down in the weeds, which is a super common thing, right? When, when you ask mm -hmm. someone to design the game, you end up tunneling down into the details of like, how am I going to have this force move? What's the resupply route? <laughs> um, and then you like, you look at the game as a whole and you realize you've missed this entire really important dynamic. Um, mm -hmm. And so I love that scene for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it's just, it was such a compelling way of pointing out that the, that the fight in the fortress was in some ways auxiliary to what was going on um but also that that to me that felt very true to what games are good for they're good for revealing how you think about the problem and then allowing people to talk to each other about a problem right often the games i'm running i'm bringing together people who see the problem from really different perspectives they're either sitting in different parts of the u.s government with different jobs um, or within the military with different jobs and they see the problem in different ways and games can be a really clear way of articulating the differences in those perspectives and what th they make you think the problem is and what the important parts of it to represent are. Um, and so to me, that was a lot more <sighs> realistic, isn't quite the word, but insightful way of talking about what games do for the military than some of the other depictions of games in sci-fi. Um, Ender's Game being sort of my least favorite, but there are other ones that I also think sort of have this problem of, oh, games just teach you to be a brilliant strategist, right? Like the act of doing the game teaches you. And really what the act of the game is doing is showing you how you're thinking about the problem. And that can you can then learn from the fact that you can see how you're thinking about it. You can see what the biases and the gaps are um, and correct them or decide that you've got the right view of it or you can communicate that view to somebody else. Uh, no, I, 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 that's really interesting. And I, I, I think it, it's a good way also of saying why Ender's Game is bad, um, <laughs> which we can <laughs> leave for another discussion. But, um, but to talk, to ask you more about this book, I, I was interested in uh, a, a sort of slightly different question, which is, you know, uh, Adrian alluded earlier to the fact that, you know, in, in game design, one of the things you have to think about is not just the 
situation where you the designer are participating but the the more common perhaps situation where you the designer are not participating and you're creating tools for other people to use and you're going to have to create tools such that they'll be usable and that it'll make sense to some totally other person and so there's this like interesting question of how much one single individual matters um hmm. in the in the design of the game and in the execution of the plan and in the and 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 you know so one of the assumptions of this book is that somebody like Jadao exists, uh, which I thought I always think is is an interesting one. I mean, certainly, you know, I think it's possible to have different views on how important a single individual can be, e- you know, even when you don't want to say, even when you don't want to go to either extreme, either they have nothing to do with ultimate success, like either history is not about great people or it is mm-hmm. like you don't have to go to either extreme. There's a lot of interesting views that people could disagree about in the middle there yeah Um, and military historians run the gamut right there are some that are all about like eisenhower or marshall or you know mm -hmm. pick your other commander uh and there are some that are much more like the structure of the institutions the technological change Mm -hmm. the role of society right so you do get that full gambit within the military space i uh if i can maybe jump on matt's question here and then pass it over to you too ellie uh this 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 pulls together several threads i've been thinking about one is the idea of like we talked about earlier having to abstract and having to not think about people individually as much anymore and then also this question of like how much do individuals matter at the strategic level because you know my my experience of most of the stuff comes just like the game design world, not actually through the military context, but through a business context. And, you know, I've managed people and I've managed teams and I've, I've, you know, (laughs) done, done this kind of work. And I've seen, um, companies go from being very small to very large and, you know, making lots of money and dealing with a lot of this. And we think about, you know, inside of a business aspect, we also think about, I mean, for instance, one of the things that I have struggled with a lot personally when managing, especially going from managing people to managing teams and larger and larger teams is this idea that like, oh, well, you have to stop caring about the individual people. Like, I never like doing that. I don't want to do that. I want to think about every single person who I manage, even if they're like, you know, three, three levels beneath me and they, you know, have multiple bosses between me and then because that's how I'm wired to a degree. And I don't like this idea of like abstracting human away from themselves in order to make decisions about them and it's you know i think one of the the for me one of the hard parts i have just with like capitalism generally like requires that we do this um i won't go too far down that rabbit hole now but also like you know i've seen in like for me it's not really a question of like great men or not but i have definitely seen the same person or two different people in the exact same role like everything else being equal will make different decisions at a strategic level. Mm-hmm. And some people are more skilled at making those decisions than other. And some people are even regardless. And I think this is the part that gets underplayed. And this book does a good job with is it's not just about making the decision. It's about actually getting people to follow you in your decision is a lot of what leadership actually is. It's not as mm-hmm. easy as being given a title and then people will do what you say. Um, and you know, I definitely like, to me, that's one of the things Jadao does like make sense with is it's not just a, it's not just that like, oh, he's this great man, whatever. It's also, it's like, oh, he's good at, he has these skills that let him, 
uh, what's it, like execute on his vision in a very particular way. And that, that, that works for me from like a business context. I don't know, Matt, what, like, what do you think about it? I'm actually curious because I know you work more in the business world. Like I do too. Like, do you, have you gotten that sense that like, you know, like that the strategic leadership of your companies matters or not? <laughs> well, of course it matters. I mean, it's impossible to say it doesn't matter. I, I, I think it's like the interesting stuff is not, you know, does it matter or not, but like, which, you know, so presumably, to me, this is how I think about it. Presumably, I assume that people are replaceable. And the interesting question is, like, what would it take to replace them? Um, so for a particular individual, you know, who, who, how do we define the set of other individuals that could replace this person? Mm-hmm. That's, that's where it gets interesting. And so I, I wonder about, like, how this plays into the design of games. I mean, you know, in the book... Jadao is considered to be this completely irreplaceable person. And that's like, you know, it's, it's sort of, I, I, I read that as a kind of a fun, fantastical conceit. You know, it's, I mean, in some sense, his irreplaceability has to do with his, has to do with stuff beyond his skills. It has to do with like his history, you know, and, and, so, and stuff like that. So it's, okay, it's more believable for those reasons. But, but when, when we're considering a strategic problem, or designing a game, or when when you're considering a strategic problem or designing a game, Ellie, how do you how does how does this element of of who's going to be doing it play into it? I mean, I imagine that you know if there's a if I think about a game, you know, suppose there's a game and it's and you know there's a win condition and it's you know hard to win, and only some people can win it. Like only some people are good enough to 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 win it with some reasonable probability of winning it. How do you think about games like that? You mm-hmm. know, how do you think about like finding those people? You know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I'm usually not trying to necessarily find the person. Um, though there are, you could use games for that. Um, I think more the way I tend to think about it. Um, when I'm des- I'm usually at this point I'm designing games for research, and so I have a question I'm trying to answer. And so if I think about it as I'm designing a lab experiment, it's an imperfect metaphor, but most people are more familiar with designing an experiment, right? So you think about the way you need to set up the experimental equipment and what materials you're going to have interact with each other in a chemistry experiment. When we're doing hard science, we rarely think about the like person who's mixing the chemicals together being super important, right? We think about those as being you can just replace those out and it's not going to matter with a game. The people in the room are hugely specific and not fully under my control. And so that works in lots of different ways. I think almost everybody who does professional gaming has had the experience of having a player who's just in a bad mood. That has nothing to do with you, but like (laughs) Colonel Smith woke up and is having a fight with his boss and the game is about some subject that somebody in his office has a really dumb pet rock on. And so all he wants to do is talk about why this pet rock is dumb, which is not what you care about at all. But now I, as the game designer, am in the position of trying to to get the player to play the game I want them to play instead of the game they want to play. Uh, and there's lots of different permutations of this. The positive version is that sometimes I misdesign the game. And one of the really important things players do is tell me that I've misdesigned the game and tell me the ways I've misunderstood the problem. And so then the report actually becomes about me correcting the model because I forgot some super important thing or I 
there was a player that was really there was a role that was really important and I didn't have a player to play. Um, and so thinking about how the the players are working collaboratively with the designer to change the game, both in terms of they're adding their own objectives, win conditions, they're adding their own constraints about what they think the actor will or won't do. Um, they're adding their own notions about what resources are available. So they're, they're a really a key part of the design process as well. And so depending on the game, it'll be more or less collaborative. Um, but they are not an ignorable part of it. And, and even, you know, if we think about like behavioral economic research, which sometimes looks like a rudimentary game, right? But even there, we worry about research when the only people doing it are undergraduates who are getting paid $5 for their time, right? We're then kind of like, I don't know if that necessarily means that's how everybody acts all the time, right? We've got similar concerns when uh, I'm simulating what a nuclear war looks like by having some mid-level military officers pretend to be the president of the United States, right? There's a big gap between those people. And so I, for a research per perspective, I've got to think really carefully about the ways that my players are or are not the right people for the question I'm asking. And try to get them to be the right people when I can and when I can't get them to be the right people to be intellectually honest about the ways that they're not good facsimiles of the real world as I think it works and why I think that and how it might limit what I'm saying. When you're when you're designing like these kind of simulationist type games, do you like you know, I totally I am picking names out of a hat here, but say that we're pretending there's a game with like, you know, we're going to war with Pakistan and they are nuclear power. And so it's a nuclear war simulation game. Again, trying to pick something that's not too real. Do you who do you have play as Pakistan? Is it the is it the game rules? Is it does it change? Do you have like do you pick like, oh, other mid-level military officers play as Pakistan in the U.S.? Um yeah, it really depends on what the both what the research question is and uh, the rules in which the research is happening. Um, right. So within the military, there's there's obviously sensitive information and sometimes there are there's a small circle of information, uh, people that that information can be shared with and that will restrict who you can have play. And so there's an external limitation on what I can do. Um, and then sometimes there's just pragmatic limitations, right? Like I would love to fly the Pakistani staff in to play my game. <laughs> Turns out they're busy running their own military and they don't really want to come here because junior analyst says it would be super handy to have them be present. Right. Right. And so, um, you know, there are well, and also that are, you're like working against them in that case and they might not actually want to give you that ability. <laughs> right. And so, so then the ways you deal with that really vary, right? So there are games where um, you develop a rule set that represents another country and you, you're just sort of, you're interested only in how one side reacts to a set, you know, you preset all the decisions that one side is going to make and you see how different people react to those decisions. Um, there are games that I've built where I've used... Um, U.S. subject matter experts, so people who spend a lot of time in country, people who've studied the leadership really closely, um, but who are themselves not, you know, themselves are, are Americans. And so 
There's questions about, are they mirror imaging? How deep is their knowledge? How good's my ability to assess their expertise? Mm -hmm. um, particularly when we're talking about something I don't know very much about, right? You know, I, um, and then there are times where, yeah, you are, you're having basically a group of sort of, uh, Charisse level military officers playing both sides. And then there are interesting questions about how do I structure the instructions I give them, the information I tell them, the resources I give them to be the thing that's that's sort of coaxing them to behave in ways that I think are more accurate rather than less accurate. And then it becomes about me as a designer. How well did I capture those um, objectives and resources and capabilities? Mm hmm. So and so I'll make different choices depending how much I know about the question, how much sort of the community at large knows about the question, what the question that's being asked is. Um, so but all of them is the short answer <laughs> to your question. <laughs> cool. That's fascinating. Thank you. The other. OK, so I had another question for you, Ellie, slash like thing that I was thinking while reading this book. And I think I've alluded to it a few times already today, which is the sense of. Like one thing that was interesting about the book was like, obviously games come up, but also this element of like, I want to talk about abstraction pretty much. Um, and this is this thing I've mentioned several times is that there there's this double sided thing of on the one hand, like when you're designing a game, part of what you have to do is just abstract out certain questions. You know, it's like you're, we're not thinking about these here. And I mean, as we've said, that's also what you have to do as a military or any sort of strategic leader is to say like, you know, the individual people are just resources right now. The, you know, these, you know, or these resources are just numbers. You know, I'm not going to worry about the quality of the bullets, just that we have them. I'm not going to worry about the, you know, quality of the tanks, just that we have them, whatever those things are. Um, and so I'm, I, I guess I'm kind of interested in this sense of like, to what degree is gaming strategy? To what degree can you actually like learn strategy even like, Okay, maybe here's a question. Do you ever have your leaders who you're like when you're working in, in particular in education games, do you ever have them do game design problems in the same way that Jadao had Churis? Because that to me actually made a lot of sense when he was like, oh, you need to design a game here. That was one of those like ping, ping, ping. Like, yes, <laughs> like that's a yeah. great way to teach someone how to think better. Yeah, no, and it, it is something um, some but not all of the military schoolhouses do. Um it is to is to do that. Um, more of them use participation in games as a as a tool. So um, again, most but not all of the military schools have games as a like credit bearing curricular element. Um, so so they are a formal part of the educational process. There is a whole literature for somebody who wants to dig into it on experiential learning, um, which not only exists in the military context but is becoming increasingly a thing in adult education. Right. I mean, that's a lot um, of the study. stuff I've worked with. Yeah. 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 Um, so, so it's definitely there and there it is both playing games and designing games that, that comes up. Um, you know, so, the, so in the military contest, this often does come up in, in like, how do we teach people to be strategists? And so part of this is because, um, within the military, there's a, there's a linear progression, right? You start, either as an enlisted or as an officer, you enter the military and then you progress up in a chain of command. And so the only way to get to be a general is by being a decent lieutenant 
at the very beginning and then being, a, you know, moving up, being a good major, being a good colonel. And then you get. But what good is and what skill sets you're looking for, in theory, are quite different at those Hugely different levels. Different, yeah. Right. And so there there are a lot of questions about whether the military is actually setting people up for success when the thing that that determines whether you get to be a general is how good you are at these more individual choices. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's there's a lot of sort of uh, thoughtful pieces out there on how do we how do we teach strategy and then what is the role of gaming as a as one potential tool that can help teach people strategy another tool that often comes up in this conversation is actually science fiction and speculative fiction hmm. so there's a whole debate about the value of reading science fiction for military officers and so there's a bunch of sci-fi for military officers book lists out there um well, we can share a couple of them if anyone's interested in seeing what this looks like but there's also a debate about you know does playing do playing games really help you be a better strategist or does it just teach you how to play that specific game does reading speculative fiction teach you anything other than that you mm. enjoy speculative fiction um and and i think the answer like most educational tools right is it depends on the person like some people learn really well from games i'm one of those people Mm -hmm. um i find the game design process is a really good way for me to get my head around what a model is but i do think there are there are people for whom it just does not work well it is not a compelling way of learning and so i I think like any other classroom tool like you want a mix of different tools because students are going to respond differently to different things right that's interesting to me because one of the things in that i like when I've been working with students and helping them find jobs, which was like a lot of what my tech work was, one of the things I would often tell them is, you know, you're brand new now, you're going into some company, you know, it's like you don't need to worry about like what your next moves are for a little while. But when you do, it's really important for you, especially in the web development world to think about moving into companies that have multiple tracks for development because You'll have some companies where like, you know, the only way to become a, you know, technology manager is to have been a good engineer at some point. But also once you're an engineer, the only way to get a raise is to become a technology manager. And it's like, you know, we I have at least made this like that's bad. Like you don't like sometimes you want to be a good engineer, just be a better engineer and be able to like move up by doing that. So it's really interesting to hear that those, you know, I mean, obviously the military is also having those conversations, but I totally hear that thing of like sometimes someone's really good at executing or really good at thinking tactically. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're great at the like levels above that well and vice versa right that some people are really good at the levels above and are like really bad at dealing with like the fact that private schmuckatelli doesn't like private jojo and Mm -hmm. that like you've got to mediate their interpersonal dispute in order to get anywhere right like (laughs) they're they're just they're really different skill sets and so um the question about how do you train people who have proven themselves to be good at one thing and are proud of their professional accomplishments that now they've got to do something that's different and that some of the people who hold expertise in it don't look like them, don't have the same experiences they've had. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually been a whole Twitter fight going on in the last couple of days about what whether academics understand the military or have things to offer the military. And like some of it's getting into these questions of if you've never served in the military, what what can you teach the military? Right. And some of it is these things that are that are not, uh, you know, that are about different perspectives and, and different ways of thinking. 
I think somebody should teach Private Schmuckatelli basic human decency. <laughs> and and maybe that person is not in the military. <laughs> uh, sure, right. Like, I, you know, I, I'm pulling that example. But I mean, there's also things like, you know, just being a, a really good marksman or a really good mechanic or a really good logistician. Like, these are these are really important jobs that we need people who are good at. But you you end up it's it's an up or out system. And at some point you have the same problem, right? Where. Yeah, I, I, that was meant to be a joke about his name being schmuck. But yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. There's a whole host of like and I think this happens in every industry, but the military has like generic names that it pulls. And schmuckatelli is one of my favorites for <laughs> for and it's always like the misbehaving yeah. dude that you need yeah. to get to knock it off. Yeah, the, private Schmuckatelli absolutely needs to knock it off. Would be a great title for something. <laughs> probably, right. probably exists. The, the, the private Schmuckatelli needs to stop stealing my food from the <laughs> communal fridge. I, so, for anybody who doesn't, uh, who wants military humor in their life more than they have, there's like the equivalent of the Onion for the military, which is called Duffel Blog. I feel like we're writing a Duffel Blog article in real time right now. <laughs> Duffel blog. Uh, that sounds great. <laughs> it is. It is really some like world class humor writing. And frankly, for people who aren't in the military and want to like get a sense of military culture, it's not a bad way of like getting a sense of the military sense of humor and some of the issues that that humor connects to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so way back, I I said that there were two. This is a while ago, I guess. I said there were two things that I really liked about the world building, and the second thing is, you know it doesn't need to have been a world building thing it's it's um it relates to the way that yunhali see, seems to like want to construct worlds and plots too um and i'm you know what i don't really want to talk about that Never i mind. mean so the, the one i would like to bridge to is the like yeah let's do something else well, I think this is on. I think this might have been the part of the point you were headed for. Um, that one of the things I really enjoy about this book is that the, in some ways, this is a very standard plot, right? There, there is a young military officer. She's taken under the wing of an older military officer because she has to do a job that's well outside her capabilities. But she rises to the challenge and succeeds by by her by both her own standards and the standards of her society in doing this big thing right like there are thousands of sci-fi books that have this exact plot mm-hmm. um but the world in which it's happening feels very fresh and very unique um and there's there was this great uh thread on twitter the other day that i was seeing by um dr jonathan's uh flower um where he's talking about how having authors who are not all cis white men leads to different worlds than the sort of standard world. And this, to me, this is just such a compelling example of uh, how you can have what's sort of a standard plot, but because the world feels different and fresh um, that the, the, the book feels really important and interesting. And so, and that comes out in lots of different dimensions that, that I think these characters are sort of richer versions than some of the other characters I've read that kind of take on these same, these same tropes. Um, but also just that the, the world is concrete and specific in some really great ways. Um, so there are all these lovely moments 
even just when you're down on the on the ground in the fortress um describing the quarters that that you're in uh you know things like there's one point where they're in they're in the museum quarter and the fact that I remember that one of the museums is about the, the pistol of some early colonist, right? The, those levels of specificity, um, the specificity of food, the way that the, these sort of ceremonial dinners are portrayed where we, we hear what they're eating and we get the sort of sensory feedback, um, the luck stone that, that Cheris has from her mother. There's just all these great grounding details. And, and Dr. Flowers makes this point that some of this is from having books that are written from somebody who lives in a different body, that literally the experience of writing and not a cis white male body um, causes you to point out different things about the world around you. And that there, it's interesting to hear different things than the kind of standard voice, and that was that was one of the things I really appreciated about this book was just that it felt like I was seeing the world through somebody else's eyes. Here, here, in ways that I liked. Yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well then, that was a rich conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I think too it goes it goes you know to the stuff about gender we talked about as well as just like culture and the fact that Yoon Ha Lee like you know grew up as a Korean American and has these multiple different like cultures that he like lives within I think those I really like that I I totally agree the world felt very lived in the world felt very like you know like the world has these really strict rules to it and then the ways in which it feels lived in all the different choices people make within those rules and how they like buck the system and how they like make their own lives for themselves and like what they really care about and what they really don't the way that like they interact with the rituals of the world and how like the rules are ultimately rituals which is i actually maybe this is a good kind of segue into this i mean this is one of the things i really liked about the world building is that you know, kind of to that point earlier of like there are people who make good strategy strategy decisions and bad strategy decisions, but there are also people who are just good leaders in the sense of getting people to follow with their strategy decisions at all. Um, and like, I think one of the good ways of being a leader is to have strong rituals to have like things and like games are one kind of ritual, um, but to have things that people engage in as a group and like work together. Um, there's a really cool book called Interaction Ritual Chains by Randall Collins that I always think of in this context, which is like it's a sociology textbook, more or less. But, it you know, it's really about the ways in which, like, when you work together to do something as a group, you create a shared group identity and then you like create loyalty to other people. And this is kind of this thing that that works. And I feel like oftentimes bad world building doesn't take into account any of that it just thinks of it in terms of like oh people do these things and there's rules and people follow the rules instead of like oh people like build loyalties to each other and create group identities and for instance the way that the like different factions have their own rituals have their own group identities those rituals have changed over time like getting jadao in and asking questions about like oh how does this ritual work now because the way that it worked defines what people take from it like oh you have to mm -hmm. share a cup now and you bring a shared cup instead of you getting your own cup that is because of a change in the way that the military hierarchy works like these rituals will reflect the world and the world reflects the rituals because that's what they do is they create a world in your head that you then go and like play out in real life 
And I really liked how thoughtful this book was about all of that. Yeah. And I think thoughtful about that those rituals are both a source of comfort and strength in community, but they're also evil, literally evil right. in this book, right? Like the the ritual of of these these torture sessions that everybody has to participate in, even if it's if it's third hand, right? It's not that everybody has to pick up a knife, but um, there are these candles that you have to light and meditate on set topics that are connected to this ritual torture and you know they're connected to this ritual torture right and and so it makes people complicit in these horrible acts um and and that you see people who have you have different reactions to those rituals and, and even within sort of the spectrum of people who are kind of queasy about it you get lots of different sort of reactions to to that queasiness mm-hmm yeah, and you see, I think, a lot of ritual within the military, too. And I think this is maybe this is a good place to also talk about the like inter political, the intertribal politics, I think is the word that you used earlier, Ellie. The like ways in which these different military groups, or not even military, like not, they're just like the different factions like work together and against each other and like feel about each other. And like part of it comes down to they each have their own rituals and each, you know, you are Kel. And like, sure, you're also part of the Hexarchate, but like you're Kel or Shuos or whatever you are. Yeah. And, and so some of this is just that I like the fact that this is not a world where the military does everything. Um, I think often, you know, the U.S. government has this problem, right? Like you read a lot about what the Department of Defense does in Iraq or Afghanistan. You read a lot less about what the State Department does or the intelligence community does or USAID does or the Department of Treasury does, right? And they are they're all really, really important pieces of the puzzle of what are we doing when we do military operations, right? It's not just the kinetic fighting. Um, it's it's also sort of the all the other stuff. But but that different types of people take those jobs. They have different interests and different personalities. Um, and I think one thing this book does a really nice job of capturing is just some of those like baseline personality differences right like the kel jokes feel the way jokes about the military feel i think particularly the sort of marine jokes are kind of the the sort of obvious analogy to the kel infantry jokes that we hear so um, it's not obvious to me like what way what, what's a marine joke <laughs> i actually don't uh, know so any it, of this I'm okay curious yeah about the yeah so so the services all have kind of stereotypes associated with it and so the Marines are, are dumb grunts, right? They're, they're the guys who you send in to do the suicidally stupid mission and they're big and they're strong and they're going to go do the thing. But like higher order of thoughtfulness is like not, not what the, like either the Marine or the like army infantry are known for. Right. They tend to be, and again, this is all like mass stereotype, right? right? So I'm not saying that everybody is in this mold by any means. But right. you're reporting, uh, not condoning. Well, I, I mean, really what I'm saying is like any other stereotype, right? There's some parts of this that are true and some parts of this that aren't true. And it applies more or less to any particular person, just the way it does in the book, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's a huge amount of variation between the different. We see the most cows, so they're the sort of good example. There's a huge amount of variation between them, right? Um, but that 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 sort of 
maybe I'll say infantry stereotype rather than just a marine stereotype because a lot of the same tropes transfer to army infantry. Um, but like huge focus on camaraderie and the chain of command and obedience and, and sort of uh, loyalty, right? The, the Marine Corps motto is always faithful, right? So, so there, there, there's this intensity of loyalty. Um, you know, you could contrast that with the Navy where, and again, this is sort of the the surface level version of it, but you're on a ship or a submarine. And so you're off on your own for months at the time. And traditionally, you're sort of more independent. And so within the ship, you have a really close community, but that, that it's really sort of more independent action, more willingness to like do the thing that seems like the right choice at the time based on what what you can see. Um and then you have the Air Force where, like, it's the guys in the planes, they're up in the sky, they have the, like, higher level strategic perspective because they can see the whole battlefield in front of them, a little bit more tech savvy, but also, like, maybe not the real fighters. Like, mm. they've got the cushy job with the AC, they're not getting their hands dirty, right? And so, so all of these have some element of truth, right? There are structural differences in the jobs they're doing in the ways they're engaging in combat and the ways... Um, that you need to rely on other people to do your job. And so there are different personalities that do tend to gravitate to these different jobs, right? In the same way, taking it a level up, the military tends to attract different personalities than dip the diplomatic corps does. Um, but, but that there's also richness and nuance within them. And so one of the things I love about this book is the differences between the factions feel the same way that the differences between different parts of the government do. And that in a healthy version of it, you have balance between those different parts, right? So the shows are doing these stupid elaborate games that are way too complicated and are going to backfire and eat up a bunch of resources. And the military tells them to like knock it off and go be more practical. But at the same time, the shows are there reminding them like, hey, you know, you could just like rather than killing a bunch of people, maybe we could drop some leaflets. And like that would be that would be a better version of of this operation. Right. right. And so that you have different strengths and different weaknesses and that a good strategist is combining all of them together. Right. Part of what makes, um, you know, we focused a lot on Jayedo as the strategic genius. But one of the things that I think the book is arguing is that he is better when coupled with Kelsharis. Absolutely. That she has talents that balance him and that the two of them together are a much stronger commander than either of them independently would be. And Jayato might be better on his own than Kelsharis is, but the two of them is certainly better. And so I think that gets at some of the, the interagency. On the other hand, you also see the negative side of it, which is that like the Hexercade is fighting amongst themselves <laughs> Like the whole book, right? Yeah. That we see, you know, Mikados has his whole different scheme that he's doing. The Kel leadership is like this hive mind that just seems, if not quite inept, that like they're certainly off in their own, like they've got their own set of priorities and those priorities are not what's good for the troops on the ground and the immediate mission. And they're also not aligned with like what Mikados is doing or aligned with what Kujos is doing. And so part of why the Hexarchate is so dysfunctional is because it's not operating in balance and towards a common purpose, mm -hmm. but rather that you've let these personality cults kind of fester in this really unhealthy way. Right. Um, which 
sometimes the U.S. government feels that way. Sometimes it feels like, it's, you know, it is working towards common purpose. Right. And so well, I guess that's, that's not why we dynamic. have like a unary executive. Right. Well, and and but but and also that we spend a lot of time talking about what the balance between civil military relations or what whole of government operations should look like. These are things we talk about and think about a whole lot because we understand that that would be the better way of doing things. But it's really hard to do well. And so in some ways, this book highlights like both why that's a good thing to do and also why it's hard for both good reasons and bad reasons. Mm hmm. I mean, I guess it's, it is one thing that, like, I see uh, when I hear people who don't have a lot of contact with the military, um, it's something they sort of miss is how different, like, right? We talk about, like, oh, do you know a veteran? Like, a veteran is not represented. Like, Interesting, what, right? Where, where was that person? What was that person doing? What type of role did they have? And so often mm -hmm. our image of the military is often, like, an infantryman where, in fact, the majority of the military is in uh, support functions, not combined arms functions. Um, we think of it as being male, when, in fact, there's a large number of female vets, um, particularly from the last last decades of war, um, that are often kind of ignored in our popular perception. And that when we think about people who have gone to war, we think about military officers and not the diplomats and the intelligence officers and uh, the relief workers who have also gone into combat. And so... Um, there's a term frontline civilian that is coming into the fore. Um, and so one of the things I like, I liked about this book is that it highlights some of those roles and some of the, those people who I think don't always enter into the, the vision we have of, of what, who is involved in security operations. Mm -hmm. I was listening to a podcast or maybe a radio show. I don't remember where I heard this thing. So I'm going to try to find it and put it in the show notes if I can, but it was just this really fascinating story about a woman military. She works for the Navy. She is, you know, she's in the Navy. She is a, she is a, she's not an officer. She's a whatever en enlisted enlisted. Right. Um, but she doesn't have a combat role. She works on one of these giant ships and, you know, she is indeed like in the military, but also her job in the military is simply stocking vending machines. Mm -hmm. Right. It was this really fascinating moment for me of like, oh, yeah, that's right. Like to be in the military doesn't mean to be like an infantry person. It also doesn't even necessarily mean to like be in any sort of combat role, whether strategic or tactical at all. Like sometimes it can just mean doing a job that needs done because you're on a boat and you need to be able to like, you need to be at a certain level to even do that job, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And that, that was yeah. like a really fascinating moment for me that, you know, I feel like maybe that plays out a little bit less in this book uh, largely, but, but even then it does in the sense of like, there's the robots, which, you know, one of Churis's like interesting character quirks is that she like, talks to them <laughs> you know which made, made, made friends with the robot right yeah. right which definitely to me yeah. felt a little bit like you know i i've had jobs where and this is this is going to come off as really bad i almost don't want to say this but i'm going to just because i already started um i've had jobs where there are you know people in whatever service roles that because you know well we work in business so we don't talk to those people blah 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 are we you know like people don't treat them as human beings for whatever reason they just treat them as like oh you you do the thing i need for you and it's crazy just like how 
just being friendly with people can get you so much more and treating people with dignity and respect and knowing their names can just like be so much easier, <laughs> you know? And it's like, I thought, I thought that was really cool. It's like, Oh yeah, she knew their names and like talked to them. And so like the entire hierarchy of all of them knew who she was and were like there to help in so much as they could. Um, and that felt again, I, I feel like I'm, you know, describing people as robots and I really don't mean to be doing that. Just the sense of like, well, but the servers are not, the servers are, are depicted as being basically people, sentient right, intelligence. Totally. Yeah, they, they are people. And in fact, one of the interesting things about the world is that, uh, they are intentionally keeping their, uh, humanity is not the right term, but their, their sentience, uh, like the full force of their ability kind of. Yeah. And, and they're keeping that quiet. Mm -hmm. And so one of their concerns about Sharice is, is she going to out that they are in fact not robots that just pick up your laundry and, and in <laughs> fact are thinking, feeling, judging and independently auto like autonomously acting beings uh, with an agenda of their own and interests of their own. Um, and that uh, they are, you know, in a lot of ways they end up saving the day and it's still, but they do it in this way where they're, they're really trying to protect themselves from from sort of being identified as sentient. Right. Yeah, we even get a few chapters from their perspective, which were like, honestly, I felt like I could read a whole book from the servitor's perspective. Yeah, they were my favorite. I love them. <laughs> uh, like, well, I not loved... my favorite, but I love no, them. No, but I yeah, kind of mine, like, honestly. <laughs> I, I love, like, their commentary on the humans is, I think, one of the cleverest ways of doing like you want an outsider's perspective to be able to explain things, but because they're invisible outsiders, they can see things that you wouldn't normally see. So there's this scene um, because of formation instinct, uh, sexual relations between Kells are banned because they're inherently coercive, right? Because of formation instinct, you can't disobey an order from a superior officer. And so any sexual contact is coercive. And so you see a server who's hanging out in a hidden space that Tukel are using to have a sexual meetup that is that is depicted as being consensual in their case. But you get the server's color commentary on like the weirdness of this ethical situation that humans have bound themselves up in. And it's fascinating seeing somebody who is very much a part of the society, but also has this sort of external judgment perspective that they can take on. Um, because of the ways that they've sort of isolated their sentience from being broadly, broadly understood. One of the things I find interesting about this book in a general sense is just the simple fact that it is a military story and that all the characters essentially are in the military in some, you know, either direct or indirect way. Um, like, you know, you can, the Shuos are, you know, are they really in the military is sort of well, but uh, Jaido, who's but, the main one, is seconded over, so he right. is formally in the military. Right, He's and, just and dual-hatted. Yeah, and even the ones that aren't Jadao are, you know, the Mikudes and so on, the, or the Rahan, or these other characters are, are really we encounter them through the lens of this broader military situation, and we're seeing them in as much as they're related to this military situation. So it's really a, obviously focused on the military story, and. It's interesting that, you know, there are a lot of there are very few stories that I can think of that try to be focused on a military cultural space and also a non-military cultural space. Um, there's very few books that try to do both. There's a lot of books that do one or the other. 
Mm-hmm. This book is is sort of, you know, focused on a military cultural space, but it also wants to give us a broader perspective on this strange and interesting society. And it's interesting the way that it it succeeds and maybe doesn't succeed as much. I, I mean, I, I think it basically succeeds in that we get a rich portrayal of a world. We get a, a place, like we've said, you know, that feels lived in, that feels like there's something interesting about the different aspects of it that feels like it was created by a an author who it's not even so much that it's not successful it's just that in general you know the book spends so much time on military cultural spaces that there just isn't a lot of time left for non-military cultural spaces so we, mm-hmm. we get a little and it does feel like the little we get is has this awesome parallax effect and you, you feel like there's a lot more out there that we're not getting and so on but it's still the case that you know just because of where the focus is um, we get this sort of, you know, interesting, uh, partial perspective on the society. And I, I found myself wondering when I was reading this book a lot, when we see flashbacks of Cheris's childhood, for example, or when we, or Jadao's childhood or, or the times when they are interacting with civilians, real civilians, like, you know, not, not any of the six not, right. factions, right? That there are people exactly. outside of those factions. Yeah, those times are, are are sort of few and far between enough that that I felt myself really wondering, you know, how the story of this book would be different if it were simply told from some totally other set of perspectives. Yeah, wouldn't necessarily be one perspective; it would have to be maybe a lot more perspectives. But it, it, just the the stuff that I think Ellie, you were saying earlier about the people on the fortress of shattered needles you know they yeah or you know adrian you said this too there's a there's a an extent to which the narrative depends on us not being too sympathetic to the uh civilians or the rebels soon enough um but um that fact says a lot doesn't it about how (laughs) (laughs) about how this story is structured and how different it would be if we got it in a different order we got different set of people telling it um, yeah this was one of those books that i would love to see the the uh companion book that's the like what is this story look like as it's unfolding from like the so a random world like what is a random civilian who's hearing about these stories uh and experience particularly like um you know if you had a random civilian what is what does calendrical change feel like for a civilian Right. We hear about what calendrical change is like in terms of its impact on technology. Um, But like, for example, the rebels are still torturing people. They're torturing people on slightly different days and for slightly different purposes. But, you know, does that actually like how much of a change do you need in the calendrical system for it to feel meaningfully different? How many of these technologies are accessible to day to day people? Is it really only the military and the elites who experience these calendrical technologies or are they part of everybody's daily life. So if the calendar gets screwed up, does your like dishwasher stop working? Right. I don't know how true this even is, but I got the sense while reading the book that the life of a lot of individual like civilians is actually like, excuse a loaded word, like somewhat primitive, like, like not actually like, sure. They live in some far future sci-fi place. And like, there's, you know, big space battles and everything, but like, you know, people live on farms still, 
<laughs> you know, like, like there's all, there's all sorts of different ways people live. And I, I I'm actually curious for you, Ellie, cause you've read more of Yoon Ha Lee's work than I, or I think Matt had maybe, maybe Matt, you know, this is the only thing of, of his that I've read. Um, do the short stories he's written, like, like, is it, is all of it mill SF? Is there a lot of different stuff? Cause I'd love to read something of his. that's just like, just about the servitors or just about, you know, like, like people in a place. Cause it's so good when, when, when he focuses on those things. Yeah. So, uh, first of all, I will say the, his short story collection is really phenomenally good. I, I really highly recommend it. Um, the books that are set in this universe are, or the sorry, the, the stories that are set in this universe are largely tied pretty directly to the story. So okay. there's some stories that are like flashbacks to bit of bits of Jadao's backstory that flesh that out, that sort of thing. Um, however, the you know if we look at the other stories, there are ones that are telling stories from from many different other worlds with different other perspectives, and not all of them are military ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing that really stands out reading the story collection is just how good a r- world builder Yoon Lee is because mm-hmm. he develops these worlds that have these just incredible, incredible systems of, you know, uh, you know, ways that they work and, and what happens in them. Um, there's one like just incredible story where people basically can can use callig- a combination of calligraphy and and surgery to build to build these paper entities that can go fight and it's i mean it's just this incredibly compelling um world that feels like like sort of nothing else you've read mm-hmm. that had this conceit um so so I would love to read the stories that you Lee would write about other parts of this world. Um, they may exist, but not in the collection okay. of his that I've read. Cool. That's good to know. Matt, have you, I'm just curious, generally, have you read anything else by him? Some, some other short stories, but that's okay. it. None of the other novels. Okay. Cool. The other novels do spend a little bit more time, um, both with some of the other factions, but we also spend... We spend a little bit more time with with some other civilians, but not, I think, in the way you it's still very tied to this story. Right. It's not it's not, you know, Joe on the farm living (laughs) independently. It's, you know, well, you know, I view that people as like a people who are collateral damage. (laughs) Right. But I, I guess I just view that as like always a good sign in world building. If I like want stories that are not the main story then like okay good good world building you know i almost kind of like want to both feel that way and not get it sometimes <laughs> um yeah right it, it's it's the universe that i like i want a fan fiction community to spring up around yeah this world. for real well this is what i was saying last time is you know my my surprise at just like like, I mean, obviously, Book was nominated for a whole bunch of different awards and won some and is, like, very well known within the sci-fi community, but also, at the same time, like, is less popular in some ways than I would expect, given how good it is and how many of these, like, themes it touches on, which are, like, you know, top five themes for sci-fi fans. <laughs> um, and I, I, I wish I could read just, like, a ton more in this world or have, like, a, you know like have a tv show set in it just about regular people like a sitcom or something (laughs) (laughs) 
one thing I think about about the world is I think Yoon Ha Lee has some one of the things I love about his work is there's some kind of core, you could call them core metaphors or sort of deep concepts that underlie some of the way that the world is is sort of it's not underlie so much the way that it's set up because it's set up in a very sort of complicated way that would be hard to reduce to one concept or one set of concepts. but like maybe the way that it's depicted the things that are focused on as opposed to not focused on is i love the way that there's this one particular concept that comes up again and again and that's um it's basically a set of ideas from linear algebra <laughs> like <laughs> I, I sort of I keep hesitating. No, don't. No, do it. Do it. No. Well, so um, there's uh, there's the idea of having a, a basis and picking a basis for computation that you're going to do, represented by matrices, um, and uh, your choice of basis. You know, in a real computational setting, your your choice of basis would be an important choice that you'd have to make in order to get the thing to come out with the result that you wanted. Um, and the the thing that's cool is, you know, this is a concept where, like, you, you, you there are certain transformations you can do. So, okay, all right, let's back up for a second. There, if you you can represent a thing that you're doing to something as a matrix, an operation as a matrix. So, if you have say a Kell formation, which is an operation that you are doing to a battle. Um, I think that, you know, as soon as I read that, I thought, oh, it's a matrix, especially because of the way that it's talked about. Um, and, you know, the basis of this particular matrix is the calendrical basis. Right. Right. So if, if that basis changes, it won't work, like just fundamentally. Like See if, where... if, yeah. Oh, I, I was just, I read it. Uh, I read it not as matrices, but as symbols, right? And so if you move yes. a symbol to a different context, it has a different meaning, right? That's exactly, as it turns out, you know, a, ma a matrix uh, can be an object in a category. And so that's a completely coherent mathematical way to represent it. Um, <laughs> so you could, you, you know, you could say category, you could say a particular kind of category also. Um, I thought about matrices just because it's like each element of the matrix is a human. So it's sort of like that made sense to me. When I was thinking about literal formation of people standing in a particular way or something. No, no, it um, makes total sense. It, it's interesting. You, you would, you've sort of brought up this idea of uh, qualitative, quantitative ways of of representing yeah. things and thinking about things. And I think, like, this is one of the ways this book does this, right? So, like the the scene where they're trying to take down the ice wall, mm -hmm. right? Like. I think it's such a good for like it is both that like it's the mathematical operation. It is also that they are pictorial symbols that have meaning to individuals and that you can use those those that symbolic meaning to hack the emotions of people. Yeah, that's the it's the beauty of, you know, like signs and signifiers and their and their kind of, you know, fraught relationship. I mean, you can you can talk about it being a lot of different things, but it's, you know, significance, uh, is invariant. <laughs> but so the, 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 um, the, the idea of the, of the basis and the, and the linear transformation applied to it, um, is present, you know, in, um, Kell formations, but it's present in a lot of other places. It's, and it's pr present in the general idea of a calendrical system, but it's also present kind of in, 
in all the different ways that crop up in this book where humans have to um where 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 the book talks about choice i think almost like every place where yunhali talks about choice there's an implication that or not every place but in some in in many places there's an implication that you know that the choices are constrained by a particular basis and do we have a chance to change our basis or not is a is a is a question that arises over and over again and is ultimately sort of what's driving Jadao. Jadao wants to fundamentally change the entire system that he's operating in so that well, Jadao wants like calculus instead of linear algebra. <laughs> it's like he almost wants to like just destroy the whole the whole thing. I think it's actually not clear how much he wants to I think that's an open question. Okay. Um, he wants the torture to end, right? Right. Like, but yeah, and to some extent, it seems like he wants revenge, right? Um, and 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 in pursuit of revenge, is willing to just wreck wreck shit. Oh, Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it seemed that not, way to me. That's not necessarily the way I read his motivations. Um, particularly, I think that the sort of part at the end, I thought it was much more about sort of. He is he is over and over found himself in places where he is denied choice or where his choices have these horrible second order consequences. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so he wants he wants his choices to I think you're right that he wants his the, the choice space to be different and the meaning of his choices to be different. But it's not clear to me that like he's not just suicidal. Right. I mean, he is suicidal, but. If he was just suicidal, he would suicide. And he chooses over and over again to pull himself back from from that suicidal choice in yeah. order to do something else. Yeah, I guess I read that he had some element of wanting to cause damage for damage's sake in addition to like it wasn't just noble motivations of wanting to like make the world better and have there be no torture. It also seemed like he was angry mm-hmm. and wanted to. Not yeah. hurt a particular person, but hurt the system. Yeah, but I, but I but I mean, he's not. For instance, he's not cruel to Therese for the sake of being cruel to her. Certainly not. No. Right. It, so so I don't think it is. I think vengeance can often the sort of vindictive. She's not really could, his target, right? Though. No, but it's but his target seems pretty inanimate, right? And like I, I guess by the end of the book, it's sort of. Neri Jean becomes kind of the target, but yeah. um, I think I mean it's I don't know then, I, I, I don't know what happens. Yeah, I am. Yeah. You, you know what happens, and, and right. I don't, and, so and that's I, the other part, right? Like I don't know how much of this is predicated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I did promise you guys that this book is satisfying to read as a standalone novel. Oh, and I it still, was it totally was? Yeah, like I I I still hold to that position. Um, it's very but, satisfying, but but it is. You it know, is also it, the first my reading of it is is good. Yeah, right. My reading is going to be colored by the fact that I I know where the book's right. going. Um, it is interesting because I actually totally agree with Matt on the sense that like revenge is one of his motivations, and so I I do want like it makes me very curious to read the next two again because I'm like, ooh, why why might that change over time? <laughs> I I don't think you're wrong that revenge is is part. I, I, so particularly the last book is very interested in like why why different versions of Judao want to tear down the system um so so i i actually if like if that's a thing you're interested in exploring more then like you're gonna like the other two books cool 
yeah i mean i think i think i will too just from <laughs> unless they're much right. worse than this one that i'm gonna like that. <laughs> cool now uh what were you saying about uh the the linear algebra stuff too i think we interrupted you or i interrupted you from the very end oh there. Yeah, um, we derailed a little bit <laughs> oh yeah i mean i guess the the sort of final the, the big point is you know the when you when you think about what it means to transform a basis there's the language of bases and linear transformations is really interesting and useful to think as it's an interesting and useful tool to use to think about um things like the ways in which something can be different and the same you know this is sort of like I, i don't have a good way of describing this but it's sort of like in the book, you know, what, what is the calendrical system? You know what I mean? It's a, it's a society, it's a structure of government, it's a, a set of rituals, it's a lot of different things. But, you know, how is it different from a different set of those things? Um, and how is it the same? Right. Like um, we, what is the difference between the heretical calendrical system and the main calendrical yeah, system? It's a little fuzzy, right? I mean, you know, we don't we don't know. We, we're never like given a list of the things they change. But, you know, the 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 tools that you get from thinking about um, uh, vectors and different bases and matrices operating on vectors and different bases is like you you get these sort of more like rigorous ways of thinking about what has to happen and what would be the result of changing the basis of something. So in other words, like what does it mean for something to be a quote unquote fundamental change such that the character of it is different and it gives you a different result, you know, so to speak metaphorically. Um, Sometimes if you change a society, sometimes you can change an entire large thing in a small way and get a radically different result if you operate that thing on something else. And sometimes you can change a really large thing in a big way, seemingly, but not get any different result. And sort of how do we think about, uh, how do we think about things on the level of a society, things on the level of a government, things on the level of a culture, um, and changing them in an intentional way while, while wanting to preserve uh, something in particular about them. Um, and this is, so there's a there's a language to 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 do this and and the fact that and, and not just you know part of what it means for there to be a language to talk about these sort of abstract things is that you know we 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 have noticed them at all we have noticed that 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 like you know we have give, we have named these things we have named the system the calendrical we have given a name to this thing which is you know perhaps we didn't have the right language for it before we didn't have a word for it exactly uh, now that we do we can think about what it means to change it and that's something i love about yun Lee's work all throughout the stuff that he's written that i've read at least is this sense of being very very willing to name things at a level of abstraction that perhaps isn't common in this type of fiction. And then having so named them, think about the ways they interact with each other and what kinds of transformations would be invariant. What what kinds of invariants exist? What kinds of transformations would, pres- would preserve bases and so on? These types yeah. of questions. Well, I think it, it's an interesting lens to look at the difference between Charis and Jaedo because they have different skills that are necessary to do that, right? So in some ways... Jado can't do the math, right? Like he he doesn't know what the base transformation is possible and like what that looks like. But then 
Charisse can't play out like how humans respond to it. And so there's this really interesting way in which what you're what you're describing the minute you describe it, I'm like, oh, that's that's why they're a good pair is because it's allowing them to access both parts of of this process you're describing. They are the synthesis Mm -hmm. of qual and quant. They are each a different (laughs) basis vector. (laughs) They are there, you know, and you can't have a complete transformation matrix without one each of the bases that you need mm-hmm. otherwise it would it, otherwise the, the resulting number of dimensions would be wrong <laughs> you'd get something different you would either lose information or you'd gain information i mean so so just to bring it back to the games for a second um because one of the things i really like about games is that they're they are a tool that fluctuates back and forth between really structured kind of quantitative sorts of rules you can move three steps in these cardinal directions um, but at the same time that the squishiness of the player is an inherent part of the game, right? The stories the player is telling about why they're doing what they're doing and why they think it matters are an integral part of the game. And so I think that same kind of dichotomy and, and synthesis also sort of crops back up in, in good game design. Um, I'm a qualitative researcher, but I've have a fair amount of training and quantitative techniques. And what I like is that I can pull from both of the toolboxes. Yep. Yeah. Cool. Well, I think we should begin to wrap it up since we have been recording for two and a half hours. (laughs) (laughs) It's going to be a lot of editing. (laughs) I think what we should end on is, um, you know, we all loved this book. I think it's fair to say, I don't think I'm putting words in anyone's mouth. Um, for folks who liked this conversation and this book, um, I mean, obviously there are two other books in the series. You can keep going right on with that. Uh, there's the other stories, both in this world and just generally that Yoon Holly has written. But um, what else would you maybe suggest for people, Ellie and also Matt? Um, so I guess some of it um, might be just... Um, if you want to learn more about how the military works or national security topics, um, there's a couple of things that we've sort of mentioned in passing in terms of uh, some of the resources about sci-fi for military officers and in military education. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll put a link or two to, about those up on the show page if Adrian's okay with that. Anything you talk about here will go in the show notes. Excellent. Um, but um you know, we've we've talked a lot about uh, sort of things that I think about because I live in a world where I work with the military a fair amount versus uh, layman's kind of perspective. Um, and I, so if you're interested in just sort of like getting smarter on the military or on national security, um, one resource that I think is really great is another podcast um, called Bombshell that's put out by War on the Rocks, which is a great uh, sort of uh, site that does short form articles um, and that has now has a, a sort of more j- academic journal counterpart, um, the Texas National Security Review. Um, but, bo- you know, those sites themselves are great, but the podcast is just a really good way to get some understanding of um, slightly beyond what's in the headlines, but how do people who actually work in this world think? So it's co-hosted by three women who've all had their careers in national security, but in different parts of the national security establishment. And so they're talking about it from some of the different perspectives I've brought up. 
Um, and they bring in a really great range of guests um, to talk about specific issues that are timely and in the news, um, but from a little bit more uh, deep perspective. So that's definitely a great resource for folks who want want access to this world in a bit more direct way. But yeah, I mean, in terms of books, we talked about a lot of specific books last time. And so if you haven't listened to the pre-read episode, um, you know, go there for more room. <laughs> This whole conversation probably didn't make sense. <laughs> no, no, but I, I mean, there, there's a bunch of books there that that also, you know, go back to go back yeah. to that and look at those books. Right. There's also I think, Matt, you sent out the link of um, five books that Yunha Lee recommends. Right. Yeah, he did. a. I think it was a blog post on Tor.com, but I'm not sure yes, we have i have it up right here um, uh yeah it's on tour.com and there so those are five books and i'll set, put that link in the show notes and tweet it or twitter uh at spectology pod on twitter check it out um and those are cool because that's those are both like books that yunha lee recommends as well as you know took inspiration from so i think that's probably a really good resource for more of this kind of writing yeah, just on a just to kind of reiterate something I think I said last time. Uh, Anne Leckie's books are, I think, I think if you like these, you'll like those in particular. Cool. We should read one of those because I've never read any of them, and I would, I would. They're like great. To. I know, folks. Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, of the people I know who've read both. I know people who like Anne Leckie's more, and I know people who like Yun Lee's more. But I think everybody kind of likes both if they like one. Awesome at least among folks I know. Cool. And then I think Ellie, you also will, will put this out. You've, you've sent out a few sort of like longer, less recommendations and more articles about science fiction and the military and the way those two things intersect. And I will, I will link and tweet those out as well. Yeah. And a lot of those have reading lists of military, you know, military officers recommending sci-fi books to other military officers. So it, those, a might be good recommendations, but B, it's sort of interesting to see what gets recommended mm-hmm. in that world. It it definitely is. I, I looked at your lists and they're really interesting. Cool. Alrighty. Well, I think I think that wraps it up for us. Is there anything else that I am missing that we are missing? No, thanks for having me this time. Yeah, no, I'm so glad we got to make this work out. <laughs> it was wonderful. I loved hearing from you, Ellie. It was super interesting. Yeah, we will we will have you on and make you maybe read yeah, something. Yeah, we should have you on again. Something that's not work for you, too, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay, well, I'll just finish it up. Like I said, our Twitter is at SpectologyPod. We are um, SpectologyPod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, you know, recommendations, etc., we love hearing them. We'll, we'll talk about them and post them. Um, our art is by Noah Bradley. You can find his stuff at noahbradley.com. Um, our music is done by WJ. You're listening to it right now. It's cool, spacey stuff on SoundCloud. Just search WJ. Uh, yeah, and we're here. We're doing... Um, oh, yeah. So next week, actually, I guess just scheduling, we'll be posting the pre-read for Victor Laval's The Ballad of Black Tom. We're, we're dipping into, you know, cosmic horror a little bit for October and Halloween. So we'll be... We'll have a couple of fun episodes. We also have a few guest episodes scheduled. Um, I think we're just doing uh, Ballad of Black Tom together. So that'll be fun, Matt. We'll get to, like, 
talk to each other. Um, I really, I really like doing this with guests, and I also like doing it with Matt. I like you, Matt. Um, <laughs> I feel like I'm getting Matt, into like, the way of the bro love. <laughs> No, I love you too, Ellie. I love you all, guys. I love her audience. I love everyone. Um, yeah, no, uh, th- thank you. Thank you again for, for coming on, Ellie. This has been like a treat and plus like nice to have the book club back together. I loved it. No, thanks for having me. Absolutely. All right. Bye, everyone. See you guys. Bye. Oh man, I, uh, I, I have, I have delicious food now too. I'm so happy. Oh, you I'm can't not, eat on I'm not going to, I'm not going to eat it on air. I'm not going to eat it It's just going to sit there staring at you being like, smell it. we should be I'm a short episode it. because Ugh. <laughs> otherwise Matt will get hangry. Yeah. Uh, well be true. Do you want to eat it, Matt? No, here, look, I'm going to take one bite real quick right now. (laughs) You were both eating. God damn it. Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the Mouth Noises podcast. (laughs) Start a new trend. (laughs) Ellie almost counts. It's reverse ASMR. I almost killed Ellie. That was so close. All right. And I can breathe. We're good. Oh, delicious. Lesson number 974. Don't inhale food. It doesn't go well. Oh, I, I missed that. I was I was eating. I turned slightly pink and yeah, tried not to die. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, five seconds and then I'll start.